That's really good, everybody. This is Nathan Allbach, and welcome to the podcast where we get into people's stories and go down a bunch of rabbit holes about what's really good in the world. <laughs> Uh, one quick announcement before jumping into this thing. I officially decided recently that I'm going to be launching a Twitch account for live streaming similar content to this show. And I'm going to be having on like a lot of repeat guests that have already had on What's Really Good and touching on a lot of similar subject matter. But uh, also going in for more solo episodes and just kind of ramblings to, to get to know more of like the people that I've gotten to know through this show so far. Um, I, I, the reason I'm doing it essentially is because it's like the happy medium where I don't have to do uh, much post-production work, which, you know, if you've listened to this show, you know, I've complained a lot about uh, just uh, how much time it takes editing these episodes to get them to be at the the level of quality that I think is appropriate for uh, a podcast. And, you know, doing Twitch, there's just a lower bar to entry because it's live streaming and it's just more immersive. So I'll be uh, still doing the podcast, just doing a lot more Twitch coming out starting in September, I think. So Stay tuned on that. Uh, I'll have more on it soon. But anyway, for today's episode, uh, I had on my friend Kevin Cox. Uh, Kevin is a math teacher at Frankfurt Friends School in Philly and a fellow songwriter who I met a few years back and I've gotten to know pretty well. and just a really great guy and I was really excited to have this conversation with him. Uh, every time we hang out, it's always, always good talks. So we hit a range of stuff throughout this whole episode. Um, we talked a lot about problems with our local music scene you know what it, what it was like getting into songwriting for kevin and and also just kind of, we, we kind of share a similar trajectory and growing up and kind of like having to adjust in the adult world as being an artist you know like figuring out financial responsibility and, and goals and like how you see yourself the older you get and yeah there was a lot and and also like uh, one of the big ones that i thought was really interesting is just kind of kevin got into what it's like teaching kids nowadays in the age of the internet which is just an ongoing crazy subject and he was really candid with his experiences and shared a lot of unique insights that i think uh, you'll all find interesting on like the education system and yeah we uh we also got into the the tragedy of kevin's best friend Brad passing away a couple years ago after being hit by a drunk driver, which is just, I mean, I don't know how there's no words, right? I mean, we, uh, we talked about just, uh, what it's been like for him processing, uh, the whole event and, you know, and everything that just comes with dealing with death of a loved one, you know, the, the existential questions and feeling just, hopelessness and then trying to find hope and meaning in it when it feels like so meaningless and just horrible you know and yeah I mean it was super heavy um he's talked about it a lot publicly he's been very candid about his experiences and I think it's super important that we all talk about that because you know it's something that each one of his experience on some level throughout life and yeah so I, I was really appreciative of how open he was on that um, just one last thing, you might notice a slight dip in audio quality uh, for the episode. It's not that bad, but there's a little echo in the room that I, I tried to edit around and really couldn't get into it. So, sorry, you probably wouldn't even have noticed it if I didn't say something, but yeah. Uh, Kevin's a great guy, and I really love this conversation, so I hope you guys take something from it as well. Now let's get into what's really good. Kevin, thanks for coming on the podcast. 
Thanks for having me, Nate. It's great to see you. I'm, I'm glad we're doing it. Um, I was We were talking a few moments ago, and I was telling you that I am running on a very little amount of sleep, and I'm not responsible for the things I might say. <laughs> Limited brain power right now. Um, but we had to do it. This is like, I think this is the third or the fourth time I think we rescheduled. Yeah, I think it's the third, but... I thought I really did think that we were going to need to reschedule after I got that text. <laughs> I, th- I was like, yeah, well, maybe as long as we get it in before the school year, it'll oh probably be pretty gosh. easy. But <laughs> were you disappointed? Like, did you get that sinking feeling? Like, again? No, not really. I, I mean, I think if it had been a different excuse, I might have. Mm. But if I was like, I don't just feel up to it. Yeah, I would have been like, dude, come on. <laughs> <laughs> like, you can't just not feel up to it this time. But yeah. when you miss a flight, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I was like, there's no way, because I put myself in your shoes, and I was like, I would feel so bad right now if I had to reschedule again, but at the same time, like, You're an empathetic dude, and like, and we know each other, too, so I think that makes it a little better. I don't know, if there was like only a slight acquaintance there, maybe there'd be a little bit more of like an awkward, like, wait, does this guy actually want to talk to me? You know what I mean? Because I I get that vibe from other people that ask to be on the show, or that I invite on the show, because... What, this is like the 60th or so episode, I think, and that's over the course of a little over a year, and I think in that time, so that's like, it comes out to like a episode a week, right, but I've invited, or other people have asked me to come, to come on the show, probably, there's probably like three or four hundred people, and a lot of them say yes, so it's like, there's always this running list of people that are like, oh, I'd love to come on the show, and I'll be like, I'd love to have you on the show, and I really would, but scheduling it and actually like, keeping a diverse range of topics and people, like, it's really tough to narrow it down to get everybody on, because it, like I was, we were talking earlier, it just takes so long to produce the, the thing. Yeah, well, I, I knew you wanted to talk to me, and I knew I wanted to talk to you. <laughs> I had it on, I have this whiteboard in my room of stuff, like a lot of creative stuff that I want to get done, mm-hmm. and the, it's just been the same stuff written there for a long time. Oh no, but, you haven't checked but, anything off. No, no. <laughs> but, but this podcast has been on there. Okay. So today, when I go home, Christy will be very happy, my girlfriend, that I'm going to erase something from that board. <laughs> it's going to feel good. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a creative person thing to do to have a whiteboard in your house <laughs> and stuff. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's different than, like, with teaching, you have a push towards whatever, you know, tasks need to get done that are held by a deadline that's the next day. But with creative stuff, it's not. Right. I don't have, like, a, a record deal or something that, where they're like, oh, you got to do this and that. It's all up to me. It's so all in your own time. Stays on the whiteboard. That's it, man. Well, I want to, I mean, we, we were talking before the show. I mean, there's a lot uh, we could get into here. And just to kind of keep it on a rough Trajectory. I think it'd be cool to start with songwriting because that's essentially how we met. So I mean, I guess let's let's kind of go back to the beginning before we had anything to do with each other. I mean, what what initially got you into to music or songwriting growing up? Well, I think music had always kind of been there in my life. Uh, when I was younger, sports were really like the forefront. Mm-hmm. I was a multi-sport athlete. When I was uh, Baseball was, like, the thing that I was the most into when I was, like, 14 and younger. Okay. Got really into basketball and played football, ran track, all these things. So they were that was, like, always in the forefront in my childhood, but music was always kind of there. I was in, like, choirs in school, and I was in—I remember I was in the select choir in middle school, which, as a sixth grader, which was only, like, five sixth graders that made it or something. So, yeah, I was like, oh, I guess I'm—you <laughs> know, I don't know. thought I was cool, but— uh, 
I don't know. And that, that was always like something I was proud of and I was appreciative to be parts of those groups. But I didn't start playing an instrument until um, my friend Brad started playing guitar and was in a band, The Go Around. And I just thought it was cool. So I asked him to teach me and he taught me a few chords and I was around 16, I think. Um, over a summer started learning and he, he really taught me just like a few chords and like how to read the tabs and right. things online and I started to kind of learn some of my own learn some songs and pretty quickly after that I started writing though like definitely too early for it to be any <laughs> sort of worth like I didn't know how to play guitar but I was writing songs oh my gosh so. dude I'm well, get this I don't think I've ever said this on the pod I've definitely never said this on the podcast before <laughs> I started writing way too early as well. I think I was in eighth grade. I had a crush on this girl, and I remember I uh, I didn't know how to play piano, and I had not even a clue. And I thought it'd be the most romantic thing ever to write her a song <laughs> on piano. And I tried to do this like chord progression, and I still remember it to this day. I could play it on a piano for sure. It wasn't the worst thing ever, but it was like super simplistic and. I, instead of writing a song the way, uh, like, a seasoned musician would do, I wrote this, like, chord progression thing and then just, like, awkwardly tried to sing over it, like, not in sync with the melody of the chord progression mm. whatsoever. Um, it was just the worst thing ever. <laughs> I think I recorded it in GarageBand. I forget if I put it online, like, MySpace, because it was in the MySpace days. Oh, yeah. And uh, it was horrible. And that, that spurred then, like, a couple-year period where... I could barely play an instrument, but I would still record in GarageBand all these <laughs> terrible songs and upload them to MySpace. And, and uh, yeah, there's still there's still some horror footage out there. I think that I could find to to send young songwriters to be like, hey, this was okay. me. Yeah, this was, this, it's always bad in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I think I might have some of these terrible songs on a CD somewhere. Ooh. I, it wasn't even. I think I recorded them in Audacity. Nice. It's um, a good program. Yeah. That's, well, great. if you know if you know how to you know use it at all, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, if you're think, just like bare bones recording into Oh, it. this is so embarrassing. I just remembered this. We didn't have a microphone. Like we didn't have, like a microphone like this or like mm. anything you would record in a studio. We took the garage band or not garage band, rock band microphone and rec- and it had a USB thing. So I was like, "We well, can just plug this into the oh, computer no. and we use that." And I mean, I guess looking back now, you would expect it to be horrible, and it was horrible, but it was a little bit better than you'd expect. <laughs> yeah. But it was really fuzzy, and I had no idea how to edit or anything. That's amazing. But. It's great to I think, see, look, I mean, I think it's cool to start from that place because it's so much more authentic. And it's one of those things that if you look back on it as an adult, you, you can look at it two ways. You can look at it as cringy, and you can be like, <laughs> oh, like, why did I do that? And there's always going to be part of that there. You're always going to feel that, like, regret and cringe and what was going on in my head. But at the same time, you could look back on it and be like, you know, that was like the start, right? That yeah. was like what got me creatively um, juiced up to actually produce something on my own, even though it was terrible by today's standards. I mean, it's all relative, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like the first thing you did. And it's a good reminder when you constantly hit walls where you feel like you can't reach the next level. And then you look back and it's like, I mean, it's literally there, like as yes. bad as it gets. Yeah. And from there till now, I mean, I, I even... Since then, I've recorded two records that I'm actually proud of, I think, are pretty good. But the second one, I would say, I feel is, like, way better than the first. And mm-hmm. that was in a difference of, like, a year. Yeah. You know? And I am confident that if I kept working on things hard, you know, it's going to get better and better. 
but that's partially because I remember that stuff. I'm like, oh, man, it was really bad back then. Right, right. And, yeah, it's it's like it's good to have that perspective and then to keep, you know, all the tools in the toolkit sharpened. It's like both those things at the same time. It's like having the the constant, you know, introspection to look at yourself right now versus you a year ago and five years ago and be like, okay, even though it might feel bad right now, no matter where I'm at in life, I can still see like a pattern of growth in some capacity. And then also that continual introspe- using that introspection to actually to like grow intentionally, you know yeah. what I mean? Like actually put work into whether it's music or anything else to better yourself in those ways. I mean, those two things locked together, mm, that's a that's a key to key to good a good life. Maybe not a successful life, yeah. but a good life, right? Yeah. That's like what what more can you ask for? Yeah. For sure. I don't know. It's just I, I do and I see that in everything that I'm doing in my life. Teaching the same thing. You know, you look back a year till now. There's so many things that get better. Um, I mean, honestly, the only the only thing that I find like frustrating about all that is like, I know I could get really good at so many different things that I think are cool, but you don't have time to do all of them. <laughs> you got to pick one. Yeah. So it's like I know I know if I quit teaching and f- did just music, I would get really good at it. Right. I, I'd become a much better guitar player. I'd become a much better writer and all those things. I just don't think I'd have any money. Mm. You know. And I know if I put everything else aside and just focused on teaching, I could become a better teacher faster but you can't really live like that though it, it, don't you wish you could though like yeah I, it is kind of sad that you can't like it, it would be great if it was somewhat of an option you know because i think there's a difference between for some people maybe listening to this I, I mean this is all theoretical maybe there's no one listening to this out there in the ether but <laughs> just theoretically i could imagine someone listening to this and thinking well yeah, wouldn't it be great if we could all just bum around and do what we want and and that would just be, like, enough to get by or whatever. But that's not what you're saying. I mean, I think there's a difference between someone just kind of bumming around, like, you know, moseying through life, doing hobbies, versus someone who is passionate about some form of art or craft and would put the otherwise put the resources into that, but they physically are incapable of doing so. Because of living in the the system that we're in, where you you aren't able to do that, because you lose money and you lose resources and you lose precious time, which is yeah. all part of you know both of us being in our late twenties. It's like you, you know that even if it is relative to a degree, or even even if it's a quote unquote social construct, that social construct is in place for a reason because people on the in within the social construct treat it like it's real so yeah. it is real like your age plays into your career and like the the relationships you're going to have and and just the how you, the future of your life is going to unfold so yeah. it sucks you have to consider all that with your art you know I guess I am in my late twenties now. I just I just turned twenty six. <laughs> I was gonna in May. say you just crossed just crossed the and, barrier. Wait, and then when you said that, I was like, no, wait. I mean, that's you fair. Mid twenties. I, I mean, I can hold that mid. But really, right. though, it's the same. I mean, it's also the feeling, right? Too. It's like I'm not in that just out of college. You know, do whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter. I'll live at home for a while. All that stuff. I mean, that's fine if you're twenty six and still living at home. That's that's not what I mean. But like. I'm hitting the point where um, I've had a, a a girlfriend for a long time, you know, and it's been almost three years, and it's we we just moved in together. Um, I've been teaching for a few years. Like it is crossing into that next phase where it's like you know people want to go out on a Friday or Saturday. I'm like not really. Like I don't I don't really <laughs> want to do that. Yeah. I mean even I with me, even with music, it's like I don't want to 
man, I don't really want to go out to a show or even play a show myself where I'm not getting home till one in the morning. Like, mm-hmm. what do you mean? Um, you know, it's a, it is that next, like, it's that next step. I, I am in my late 20s, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I, and it's with teaching, like, yeah, I could put it on pause for a while and do it later. But, like you said, it affects everything else. If I, if I do that and I'm just playing music and it doesn't work out, which I have no reason to really believe that it would. Maybe I'm cynical now, but, you know, <laughs> it's just like, what, what am I going to be doing then? Right. I would have no option but to be living at home, which my parents would be fine with. They're great and loving and supportive, but I don't know what else that would bring me. Yeah, I think most musicians or songwriters in their, you know, in their young adult years, they they reach that tipping point where you either, you go one of two ways. I mean, this is kind of, uh, this is parallel to most ways of life. I mean, you either stay in that hyper-optimistic, idealistic camp and you just keep believing in yourself and just kind of aimlessly not aimlessly but you know what i mean just kind of uh foolheartedly going forward with whatever it is you're doing or you go the complete opposite way which is just ultra cynical and just you know being a being a hyper realist and being like well you know nothing really matters you know people don't really care i i'm on my own i have to make money it's all about the Mm -hmm. bottom line it's all about paying my bills being an adult etc and then you just move that direction and most people if those are two extremes, most people are somewhere in the middle, yeah. right? Like you kind of find like whatever balance works for you. And I think most musicians, they lean into that hyper idealistic side because of the artist mentality of just being open to possibility and experience. And you believe in yourself and it's your craft. Like you want to express yourself and hope that people will care. But I think there's something to be said about you know, again, being introspective and just having that realization at one point, like like you said, it's not like you're old, but you're reaching that point in your own life journey where it's like, like you said, you've been teaching for a while, you're in a relationship, you're on your own living as an adult. And you start to think about the consequences of, of things on a monthly basis. Like I have these bills to pay. I have these responsibilities. Maybe these are some uh, future short-term goals I have. Like I want to start a family or whatever it might be. And as you consider those things, you start to think in, in more broad cultural, financial terms rather than just being like, well, if I keep pursuing this craft, maybe I'll make it next year or the next year. Like you start to have a broader lens that you see things. And that can easily slide the other way into cynicism, like you're saying. But but I think it's good to have that balanced perspective because you really, as as you get older, like I said, time isn't on your side. Like you have to, while you can, you know, put in the work and, and understand that the the kind of stepping stones you're putting in front of you right now they they it's not like they they have to define the rest of your life but for most people they do yeah. you know it's not like it's I'm not I'm not like a hardcore determinist like it doesn't have to be that way but I'm just if you just look at probability like most people what they fall in line with in their 20s ends up being like the trajectory of their life roughly at least yeah. you know so it's it does matter to think about that stuff I mean and I've I've stopped saying but did say not too long ago that eventually I would stop teaching to do music full time. But the thing is, that I didn't really understand is that I was going to grow to love teaching. Like, mm. it's not it's not that I have a job that I'm like, oh, I can't wait to get out of here. And right, right. I mean, you have those days where you're like, wow, I'm tired. I can't wait to go home. But... I mean, even having this whole summer break, do I want to go back to school? Not really, but actually I do. Yeah. Like, I actually miss the kids that I know I'm going back to work with, and I actually miss that environment. And while I would happily make summer longer, 
I do like my job. Yeah. You know, and and that's something that even though like every job there's there's cons, it's like I'm not going to leave this to go for music where I still have some of the optimism in myself, but I really don't in the music scene, mm. especially in Philadelphia. Like I just don't I just don't see it. Like it just doesn't it almost doesn't even exist to me. It's really? it's like there are people that are good musicians who are out there playing, but there's there's like to no career end. Yeah. It's like you can you can practice here, but you can't really be a professional here unless you're going to yeah. play cover gigs and all that stuff, which is fine, but like that's not really what that's not my vision. Like I, I just I just went to a, a Switchfoot show. Switchfoot's my favorite band. I've seen them like double digit times. Love them to death. And like I got some of that inspiration back being at their show because I'm watching John Foreman run around the stage and like in this room of people at the Fillmore who are in love with what's going on. You know, they're in love with the messages of Switchfoot, the positivity, the hope, like all the stuff that has like changed my life. That's what I want to do. But like how do you get there? Yeah, how do I, Yeah. And I know I could write songs that are like that. Like I have the, that confidence. I know if I was on a tour for a long time, I would I would be able to muster the energy that it takes every day to mm-hmm. go out there and do that stuff. But there's a lot of cons you don't think about when you're younger. And again, looking around in Philadelphia, I'm just like I don't really see that there's those like people who can push you to to that level and that's why people like move to nashville or la or right and it, it, so it's, yeah it sounds like it's largely an infrastructure problem that you're thinking about because yeah. i think about it in terms of it, it kind of works both ways right because if you go to new york city or nashville or la like the kind of big popular music cities that everyone goes to and, and you go if you ever go to just even like an open mic in new york city you're bound to see some incredible Musicians, because everybody has this, the thought that you just laid out, where it's like, if you want to make it, essentially, you have to go to one of these places. And I think the the, the positive is, ju- is just that, that you have more opportunity. Um, there's more people with with the right eyeballs on those cities, like the, the record labels, the producers. Like, there's people scouting them much more so than, than the average uh, American city. And that counts for something. And then there's more, because of that, there's more venues. There's more open mics. There's more places to get connected if you know the right people which is always another story it's always hard it's hard it's hard for anywhere to to get connected but um so there's that like that's that side of it but then there's also kind of the negative side of or the i should say the positive side of it then because it in in terms of philly being not like those cities you get to kind of you you get at least more of an opportunity to be a big fish in a small pond yeah and then that kind of expands outward like it's like the best songwriter in you know, nowhere town, Idaho or whatever might suck if they move to Philly. And then if the best songwriter in Philly moves to New York City, they might suck. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's like there's all there's a lot of relativity there, but but I know what you mean. Like like there's a lot of amazing talented musicians in the Philadelphia area that mm-hmm. I've known for 10, 12 years in some cases and a lot of them have still not gotten like virtually any recognition. Right. And they're people that I willingly listen to, like on Spotify or Bandcamp or whatever. Like I like their music that much. Yeah. And it just seems like there's no infrastructure in place to get them to that next level. They've been doing it forever. It's not yeah. even like, oh, this is like a new act. Like maybe they just haven't been picked up yet. Like they've been on the radar. They have the connections. They just haven't, for whatever reason, been able to cultivate a fan base or a, a media 
connection base in the city. And it's really, it is kind of confusing when you, when you look at it in that way. Yeah. And I think, I think part of that where I get stuck is like all the techniques that you could try to market yourself. I feel like there's like, you still need to have a group to market to like, Mm -hmm. and I think there's a lot of things that I see bands do or that I, or I'll read like, Oh, you should do this, this and this. I'm like, yeah, I could do all those things. Like I really believe in myself that I could do the things that it takes to grow the fan base. It's just that getting from friends and family to actual, like a fan base Mm. is like a brick wall. Right. And I haven't, I haven't really seen tips for how to break that. And I think a lot of people are at that level where yeah. it's like, or I'll say this, friends and family and other musicians. Like, right. Other, so, uh, musicians support each other. Yeah. 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 And like, and we get what it, we get what people are going through, mm-hmm. you know, and we get what it takes to make a record and we, and we can respect that craft. But yeah, I don't know. It's just like taking that step to get through that. I don't know. And I, and I feel like it's weird because you can even play on WMMR and play on 104.5 and, like, do these things that, again, when you're a kid sounds like... Like the coolest thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, But it's just like, well, you know, you were live at 5 and people were listening on the way home, but no one, like, got home and looked up right, your account. Right, yeah, It wasn't inspiring enough yeah. for them to be like, oh, my God, who was that? Yeah, like, wow, I just have to buy all their records, which yeah. you can't even do. I just, you know, <laughs> just can't wait to add them on Apple Music. Like, yeah, people right. won't even do that. It doesn't even it's, matter. Yeah. <laughs> That's rough. Yeah, no, I, I 100% understand. And part of me, I fault more toward the cynical end of this, this, uh, this concept only because... I've kind of recently just come to terms with, I'll call it, I'll call it like a spectrum of talent within songwriting. Right. And I try to be a hyper realist in terms of like understanding the hierarchy and like where I fit on this spectrum, like in terms of who's below me, who's above me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You can kind of point to certain musicians, point to certain people in the area. And just, I try to think to myself, like, what are the things that are doing better than me? What are the things they're doing worse than me? And I try to be like, and obviously this is all, it's, it's, it's in part inevitably subjective because right. there's always going to be subjectivity to, to style and all that. But I think you can obtain a level of objectivity just in terms of pure talent, pure songwriting ability, pure production quality, uh, charisma. Like these are all things that you can, or even branding, like yeah. what kind of merch or whatever. Like these are all things you can objectively point to and like you could put person A and person B next to each other and be like, this is better than that. Like, even yeah. maybe I like the B better, but like A clearly looks better and is marketed mm-hmm. better, et cetera. So right. all that said, I think what really sucks is that wall you're talking about where most musicians can't get past the family, friends, uh, and fellow musicians, fan base type of type of thing. It's because like the truth is it really is tough to make to that upper echelon. I mean, there's a reason that, top charts exist there's a reason mm-hmm. only so many musicians can sign to record labels and all that i mean it's not just a supply and demand issue i mean it's also just the fact that when you get to those upper levels there's certain qualities that that come into play that sometimes are almost unexplainable like there's certain musicians i can point toward and look at the times the time in their career when they took off or whatever and i can start to think their music was good 
but it wasn't amazing. Like what, what set them apart? Like why did they get picked up by this record label or whatever? And oftentimes it has to do with things like their looks, literally like how attractive are they or like, yeah. and not even like in the conventional sense, but sometimes guys or girls that have like a dark feeling, you know what I mean? Like it's kind of mysterious, like a vibe they give yeah. off. Maybe it's emo or introverted or whatever. And just that, presence maybe maybe it's, maybe it's a way they, they cup the mic when they sing you know what i mean there's certain things that you can do as a performer in your stage presence and your in your clothing that you choose to wear your makeup whatever that attracts a certain audience and all it can take and sometimes is that to give you the edge to get to that next level you know what i mean it could be the most minor thing but it creates a draw then for a, like you said a specific group to mm-hmm. market toward and i think that is the thing in, in, in many cases, that separates the, the lower rung that people like you or I on, are on versus that upper echelon and then the, and then the higher upper echelons where you, you separate the people who had like regional success, national success, international success. Most of it's talent, some of it's luck, and then some of it is just like the ability to market yourself in a unique way. And I think yeah. when you look at the local scene, I see a lot of talent. Like there's, there's a ton of talent, but... There's a lot of lacking in like the marketing department and the things that make you stand out in your demographic. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Like those are the those are the two like toss up, you know, toss ups that that make it uh, actually challenging. I think to to get people to like you're saying want to seek your music out online. Yeah, yeah. and I think part of it too is like when I think about the lack of infrastructure, I just think about the lack of like I think the I think the Philly. And and when I say Philly, I mean like the suburbs surrounding too. We have greater Philadelphia, Phoenixville, and Westchester, and everything. I think there's a lot of musicians support, meaning like songwriters will support each other and like, oh, you need me to play guitar in your band? Cool, I'll do that a couple times. But there's not a lot of like people who want to be on a team. And maybe I just haven't. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that people are listening. They're like, no, you're wrong. I'm here. But please email Kevin if this is the case. Yeah. Make sure my link my email address yeah. so they're like. But I feel like there just aren't people who are like very willing to play a strong supportive role on a team for an artist, mm. and I include myself in that. Like I think there's a lot of there's a lot of frontmen, you know. There's a lot of people that have their band or their project, and rightly so for a lot of reasons. They're good songwriters and that sort of thing. But I don't see a lot of people who are like, I'm going to go join this group to be like the number two guy. Ah, yeah. You know, I'm going to go join this group to be like their drummer and really focus in on them and I'll do marketing for them. Like, I don't see a lot of that. It does happen. And I think those bands are more successful. But for the most part, I see a lot of people like myself who are like, you know, you'll see different people playing in my band from show to show and like you know i i'll play in other people's bands if they need something but like i don't know it's i think it's hard to really make that commitment and probably for a lot of the reasons we just talked about i was too, literally to say, just gonna like, i was literally just gonna say <laughs> i think this ties back to just the fact that the older you get the more inevitably individualistic you get because yeah. you look out for number one yeah. like as soon as you start going through as soon as you leave college or leave high school even in a lot of cases you inevitably um, are, are tapped into the bill cycle. It's like, what am I having to pay for on a monthly basis? Maybe it's healthcare, maybe it's car insurance, maybe it's phone, internet, rent, whatever. As, as you kind of go on, you, you accumulate more bills. And, and as that happens in your mid to late 20s and even early 30s and mid 30s, you're still in that phase of your life where you're not like, in most cases, making a lot of money. Like you're yeah. scraping by in most cases. So 
in in that, I mean, even the people that I know that I'm, I consider myself in like a, a successful uh, grouping of people just from like my work personally. And like, I have people that care about what I do and all that, but even with my own, uh, my life and my, me and my wife live in an apartment. It's a small apartment. It's a nice town. Um, we're not like breaking the bank. Like I'm not, I'm not yeah. putting away thousands of dollars every month. You know what I mean? To actually accumulate to a level where I can feel fine about taking a day off or a vacation or doing something leisurely or, 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 or investing in an album, right? right? Like these are things that even I can't do. And I do feel like I'm successful. So yeah. I think, there's like that age bracket where the older you get into your 20s and 30s, you're still sort of poor, even if you are successful, unless, unless again, exceptions. Of course, there's people that just get right into re- or, um, like a real estate or, or they become a doctorate at college. Forget that. Like there's, yeah. those people are the exception. I get that. That's fine. But regarding this, I mean, think about like in high school or even like pre-high school when you're young like that it's cool to be a musician. Like all your friends want to support you. It's like, oh, you're going to be a rock star. And like <laughs> yeah. girls, like if you're a guy, like girls love it. It's like, oh, he's a musician. <laughs> and it's like the meme. But then you're like 26 as a musician and girls are like, oh, he's a musician. Like yeah. I know <laughs> yeah. that he's going to like, you know, be wasting all his time and money on music yeah. and not being a success or whatever. So I definitely think that that hyper individualism plays in to why it's so difficult to create a support system because the people our age, they are just invested in their own life. They're trying to save money. They're trying to find work. They're trying to be successful in their own right. Whereas if you keep tracking younger into like the early 20s, the late teens, these are people who still have that, like you're saying, that hopeful optimism and they want to get involved in a bunch of projects because they're just getting their toes wet. Yeah. So it's a lot easier to be to get commitment from younger people who are just like, they want to be part of something bigger than themselves versus in your late 20s, you're already getting that adulthood cynicism of just, I got to make rent this month. I don't have time to go out to so-and-so's show in Philly or invest time marketing this product or like promoting this band. You yeah. Know? So. Yeah. I mean, I when I think about the first two records that I did, I paid for them myself, which I couldn't do again. Like I did the first one, I was living with my parents and I was doing a long-term sub job at uh, Great Valley and and before that Stetson, which are both like in the Westchester School District, Great Valley School District. They both, you know, nowhere are you being rich as a teacher, but mm-hmm. like the, especially living at home, that was good. Yeah, I had, yeah. definitely had enough money to put a couple thousand dollars into albums then, but I can't do that anymore. Like, I I think about that, like, looking forward. I'm like, I don't know how I would possibly save. And and the other issue, you want to spend more money each time because you realize the things that didn't go as well. Yep. Yeah, of course. You up the ante of production. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the other side, it's like, you you know, there's a saying that you're supposed to, I guess it's not really a saying, but like a tip to spend as much money marketing your album as you spend on producing it. Yeah, it's like 50% because you have to get people to listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, well, I didn't do that in the first one. So you're telling me (laughs) that record that wasn't even good enough that I need to spend more on to make it better. I also have to double the amount of money that I spent, (laughs) but now I can't, like I can't even afford the first part. Yeah. So, which is where like Kickstarter and those things can be helpful but, but it's, it still it's sucks work. it's still yeah. yeah and exactly even even doing a crowdfunding type product is still in and of itself a job because you have to be shoving that in people's faces all the time you're constantly emailing texting you're you're like hey please you're basically maybe not in, in literal in the literal sense begging but you are begging like you, yeah. you might be like hey man it's been a while like just message, messaging some random friend like i hope you're doing well I'm doing a Kickstarter. Please support me. Maybe it's not like literal begging, but it is kind of you begging. Like, hey, yeah. you're you're essentially saying 
I need help and I can't afford to do this on my own and I'm reaching out to whoever I can reach out to and it's it does suck because because I'm the same I was the same as you I literally the the albums I all all the albums I produced I produced whilst living with my parents and I could never do like invest what I invested into those albums as uh, someone who's living on my own now I just wouldn't I can't even imagine a time in the future where I would be able to yeah because it's like again like I want to have kids you know yeah. what I mean like I want to be an actual adult at some point and just the thought of at this point investing thousands of dollars into a project that's completely for at this point in my life at least self-fulfilling like it's not like i'm trying to become a famous musician or whatever so it's all for me ultimately even if i'm like oh it's all i want to share the songs like there is that part of it of course it's like i want to express myself people like my music it's fine i'll share the songs but ultimately it's for you like we all record for ourselves like it's not it's not like this philanthropic endeavor that we're like oh we're gracing the world with our music (laughs) like we want to do music you know what i mean like it's it's like a benefit an added benefit that people listen to it so I can't imagine even th- into the future thinking about investing that type of money. And that sucks. It sucks yeah. to think about that. And that's well, that's what also makes me think, like, so if you were going to do it, everything we just talked about, you have to give up, which which is possible. Like, if you really, really, really wanted to do it, yeah, you could move back in with your parents. You know, you could do the Kickstarters and everything <laughs> and make that, like, as full-time as possible. You could quit your job. Like, you can do all these things, and it's definitely possible, but that's where the actual decision comes in of, like, is it really worth all that? And for me, the reason I just can't imagine actually saying yes to that, even though I did I imagine that when I was younger, is you can do all that and not make it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And this this might be getting a little pedantic, but I I definitely think again this kind of goes back to the the concept that you have to at some point in your life as an artist of any level be able to look realistically at your situation and compare yourself to other people if you're trying to invest that level of uh, financial security into what you're doing. Like, it's totally different if you're just doing it as a passion, hobby, and it's not right. draining your bank account. Do art forever. That's fine. Right. Like, who right. cares? But if it has, like, actual financial repercussions, and, and not just financial, but, like, emotionally, emotional health repercussions, like, all these things factor into your identity as a person. Like, the longer you pursue a craft as, as hardcore as you are in, in music theoretically here, it's going to have an effect on you as an yeah. adult. Like, we've all seen the 60-year-old the dad with, like, the, the old-looking Fender and his gross amp at a bar rocking out. And, like, in a lot of cases, I think that's a beautiful thing. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with expressing yourself in older age. There's absolutely... I think it's awesome that people yeah. can do that. But there's always that guy. And you look at that guy, and I've known... Many people like this. I've known them personally. I've talked to them. They still think they're going to make it. I literally know men in their 40s and 50s that play these bars and they're doing it, talking to me and talking to the people at the bar, like recording this record, this new record. Like it's going to be the one. Like I'm talking to this manager. He was the ex manager for Tool or like Black Sabbath. Like he's helping (laughs) us out. He's like, he's actually the guy that Black Sabbath's like cousin or whatever. You know what I mean? Like they're still speaking about it in a way that's consuming their identity. And again, if it's in a healthy way, if it's just a hobby, whatever, that's fine. But if right. it's like consuming your all your being, and the older you get, it just becomes really difficult, I think, to to realistically be able to look inward and be like, what does this thing that I'm doing mean to me? Like, what? How do I place this on the map? Because it really, it really does become more and more difficult to 
to to manage that balance. I think as you get older, you know. Yeah, and I think if it, some to some degree, I look at those older people too, and I admire that. Even though I do think it's silly to be like fifty five thinking I'm still going to make it because it's this next record or whatever, and you've been trying for 25 years or something. To some degree, it's silly. To some degree, I'm just like, wow, like you really have that much passion for it. Right, right. And and I think about myself, and people have told me, like when they see me perform and things, that they can just like feel the passion. Like that's like, I, I think the number one compliment that I've gotten that I appreciate the most and that I get the most is that it's passionate. Yeah, you have like, a great stage presence. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, but then I think, though, like, am I really passionate enough that I could be like that guy, that mm. I would still be? And I really don't think so. Because also, if I was really that passionate, I would be playing much more frequently than I am right now. And, mm. and by playing, I just mean practicing, not even just, like, live. But, like, I would be at home working on songwriting, at least, because that's the thing I like the most, and singing. Like, I would be working on that every right. day or at least close to every day, if I really was that driven. But, you know, maybe I could be if I wasn't teaching and doing other things, but, like, I do have other passions. Yeah. Like, I, I do like thinking about my job when I'm not there. Uh, I do like thinking about what I'm going to be able to do this year to make the kids' lives better and get them better at math and, you know, all that. I have that passion for other things, too, mm. and from personal relationships. So it's like... You know, I I think part of me is, yeah, realistic that maybe I'm just not at that level. But part of me is also like, I don't know if you really have the passion to put yourself at that level because that takes a lot. Yeah. You're too logical, man. You're too logical to I be know. a famous artist. What, what, <laughs> li- almost literally, I mean that. I mean in the sense where the same um, traits, almost the same traits that, that create that older person that's in their sixties or whatever, still rocking out, believing they're going to make it. The same traits that make that person are the ones that make like a Prince or a David Bowie. Like you almost have to, in order to reach that level of fame or whatever, you almost, in almost all cases, not all cases, you have to be almost disillusioned with yourself at your own talent. Like you have to like viciously believe that you are something special and that you're unique and it almost gets to the point where being like self analytical or whatever works in reverse it almost harms you more it to get to that level because you have to this is the whole concept of like the climbing the ladder you know what i mean like the corporate ladder even like you can you can parallel this to just business life in general or the industry of business versus musicianship or artistry because it works the same way like everybody everybody who's been in music long enough has horror stories about people they were friends with that friend got picked up by a manager they moved to la or whatever and it just changed them and they're not the same anymore now they're a bad person they're a douche they're very um temperamental they they don't they don't keep up with their relationships all they care about is hanging out or hanging around people that are more successful than them so they can step on them Mm -hmm. And and everybody's everybody has that story everybody knows at least one person if you if you're a musician or an artist who's in that space who like someone got elevated to that next level and it changed them forever as a person and I really think, I mean, again, we're speaking in sort of probability here. Like, it's not like this is an all-people thing, but it's, I think, most people who reach those insane levels of success, like, you have to be disillusioned with yourself. Like, you have to shove your ego through the door 
to believe in yourself that hard to make something happen. Because if you don't, if you're constantly like self-doubting and being hypercritical of everything, like it's not that it's impossible to make it. Like there's plenty of artists who are super hypercritical of themselves and all that, but it's yeah. just a lot more difficult to build, like to get off the ground with that attitude. Like right. there's, there's artists who are already successful and they have that attitude. So that it's like, they almost have the privilege of being self-critical because they already have a following and all that built in. But if you're someone starting out and you have that attitude, like you are being a realist, like I'm an adult, I'm trying to figure stuff out. Wait, I'm passionate about this. How can I be passionate about that too? Like you're already weighing these things. You've already lost half the battle because now you're, yeah. you're out of that headspace of like, being full of yourself, you know, right. what you almost need to be, like, to, to get to that level. Yeah. I mean, I think of, like, Adam Levine told his grandmother, and I heard this, I mean, Adam Levine didn't tell me himself, <laughs> but <laughs> he, he told me, or no, he didn't tell me, he told his grandmother. <laughs> I was just choked on my water. <laughs> he told his grandmother, like, he was going to be a star, mm-hmm. and she was like, all right, like, and I think about that, a guy like Adam Levine, who you hear that story now and you're just like, wow, that's so cool that he just knew because he is like one of the biggest people right. in music ever. Yeah. But if he had failed, he would be that same guy. You're like, what is this guy's problem? Exactly. He's so exactly. arrogant. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's it, it really is wild. The, the other thing I was thinking about when you said, like, trying to take those risks to get to the next level and get to the next level when you're a musician all of the bottom levels have no money. But when you're in business, like you have a job. Yeah, you're building. Like you're 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 creating building blocks to like the next phase of your right. career or whatever. But while you're getting a paycheck. Like if if my goal in teaching was to become like uh, a superintendent or something, right? I got a lot of steps to climb to get there. But while I'm climbing, they're paying me to teach. Yeah, right. You know? I'm doing well enough. Could I be doing better financially? Absolutely. Um, again, I'm 26. Like, right. what, do you, what do you expect? We're millennials. We have to complain about our money. <laughs> you know? Yep. And nobody's going to pay us because we have no experience. Yep. But uh, but seriously, like, that's that's the difference, and that's the risk-reward. It's like I'm not going to risk everything to not get paid for a decade mm-hmm. and then put in thousands of dollars, whereas with teaching, I put in the money in college. I don't have to continue to invest tons of money into being a teacher. It's not like I have to pay the school to let me teach for a year. Right, right. They're going to pay me, you know, and I'm going to keep trying to get better. But even if I don't do a great job or I make a mistake, I'm going to get paid where, you know, music, it's if you don't, if their record's not good. I mean, even if it is good, they're probably not going to pay for it. So why would they? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Everything's streaming now. It's like it's like the uh, the the Gillian or Jillian Welsh Welch song, uh, Everything is Free Now. Do you know that song? Yeah, yeah. So good. It's yeah. so it's so sad though, I mean, it's so, it's literally prophetic. I mean it's it's horrible how it is. And yeah, I mean, it's tough, man. It's tough looking at all this stuff rationally because yeah, when you look at the the landscape of musicians who are even just in our area as like a micro example, I mean it's there's a lot of talented people out there and they're our age, a lot in a lot of mm-hmm. cases they're older than us and they're they're putting the hours in the hustle. But like you said, I mean, I think there's a point where you realize that, hey, you know what? Technically speaking, like I could I could increase I could increase the probability of me getting successful if I quit my job, if I just put everything into this. But without the infrastructure there, it just seems like such a like a bad bet. Like if you were a betting person, it just yeah. seems like the worst bet ever because I mean it'd be so different if there were 
a hundred times the amount of bars and restaurants and and bo- and promotional companies that were booking local musicians to pay them. Like if there were things in place that you could actually go to these bars and like and do like a tryout thing and be like, hey, like I'm gonna try out to play here every Tuesday night, or I'm gonna yeah. try out to be part of this open mic or this songwriter showcase, whatever it is. You could if there was more structures like that in place and you knew going into it each of these things guaranteed you a certain amount of money. There'd be so many more people lining up to be passionate and to pursue music, I think, because you can look at it, like you said, there's a trail towards success. It's like, even if I don't make it, at least I'm making a little bit of money. Like, it's not like you'd be making thirty or $40,000 a year, but you'd at least be making enough to, to scrape by, maybe to, like, work a part-time job or something yeah. to help support, like, what you were doing. But the way it's laid out now, like, especially as an adult, like I said, unless you have a lot of luck and you come from either a privileged background like I do or you come from a super educated background where you have, like, other... Uh, things to fall back on, you know, or if you're like just a trust fund kid, like w- without those safety nets, I mean, it's really tough for anybody, even even the youngest people to to look logically at the situation and be like, oh, yeah, that seems like a good bet, which is yeah. why, like I'm saying, you must have to be disillusioned to the fact of like, I'm going to make it because when you look at the actual factors involved, almost everything is working against you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, and for the record, when you're talking about making it, I'm not even like. When I say making it, I don't even mean, like, the level of 21 pilots or something. Would that be cool? Oh, absolutely. That's the dream, right? To play mm-hmm. sold-out stadiums for people who absolutely adore you and, like, tell you how much their music means to them. Like, but, I mean, even just, just like, making $40,000 a year. Yeah, just getting by. Like, just yeah. that, like, upper, like, moderate level where you're able to... to put out like an album a year and to play shows where people come to have tours booked for you have merch like just yeah. being at that like entry level of success is it's still so unattainable even if it was just like so i'm getting to a point where i feel like it doesn't make sense to play more than maybe four shows a year mm. uh in in the same like within this area yeah right so even if one thing was changed where all of those shows were packed you know and people like knew all the songs and everything then, like that, that, that's great for me. Like yeah. I'd be good right there, but instead it's like, I feel the thing that's the hardest for me is I feel like I am begging people to come to shows who are respectful and loving and caring and supportive, but I don't even really know if if they all necessarily really enjoy. Mm. Being there, like you mean it's like a friend thing where yeah. like they just care about you and yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do think. Some of my friends have told me, and they're honest people, and I and I know it's the truth that some of my songs have really meant a lot to them, and that's almost enough in itself to just do it, like to do another record, which I'm saying all of this, and I do really feel like I'm gonna do another. Like, <laughs> I, I really, it's still like the fire, like the embers are still there. Yeah, yeah, there's this small like, there's a small thing there that's just like you can do it better. Mm-hmm. You can you can take the next step and and make it and be really really proud of a of a record um i do feel like that's there but that's the insane part of you that has to be there to do it right and, and also on, on top of that i think to, to kind of just speak to the the maybe like disenchantment you're you're feeling right now because I've, I've been there i think part of it is that your outward life and brand whatever you want to call it like your your public image on social media plus your relationships in real life they obviously are are, are a, are a uh, 
a projection of what's going on inside, like internally. And if you're struggling with this stuff internally, you might not even realize it, but th- that is bleeding into reality. Like even just take, take this as an example. I don't even know how true this is because I don't follow people that closely on social media, even my friends and family. I'm not on Facebook too often or whatever because it's like my job. Yeah. So it's like I try not to be on social media in my free time. But um, I, I could even point to this example, of, and you can let me know if it's true. I mean, I would imagine – say three or four years ago when you were like hype and you were really like on fire to get into this, the amount of times that you would post about it on social media and the amount of people you would talk to about it and just the energy you had about it was a lot different than right now. Uh, you know what yeah. I mean? Like you po- you probably post less, you probably talk to people about it less and the way you post and talk about it is probably, again, slightly, even if it's only slightly, just a little bit less energetic maybe you know what i mean because like yeah. people people attach narrative to whatever they're doing in life like i think half the reason people would come to a show like yours where it's like like the shows you did for brad or the shows i've done that were like from a kickstarter project or whatever people want to feel attached to the thing that they're they're attending like if they're gonna be part of something they want to feel like it's not just another show you yeah. know what i mean like they it needs to be some kind of special event like something mm-hmm. that's purpose-driven that is a reason for them to get off their couch on a Saturday night instead of watching Netflix. And I think that's the other difficult thing about being a musician in general is like is maintaining that that energy for the people that are listening as on social media, in real life, like making it a constant projection of who you are, which is something that yeah. comes back to the identity crisis because without yeah. that, you're essentially just like, hey, guys, I'm putting a new album out. It, I'm, I'm stoked about the songs. Please come out to my show. And that's just not as appealing as like you being like balls to the walls. This is everything to me. Yeah. Please come out. You know what I mean? Yeah, like it's yeah. just that. And I don't know. Maybe you can speak to that. I don't know if it's the case, but like that's how I got as I dwindled out of my yeah. songwriting for sure. No, I mean, I was just thinking about it. You can go on my Instagram and like, I don't even, I haven't really posted much at all. Like not even like personal stuff. You mean? Yeah. yeah. For, I mean, I posted something cause I went to a switch foot show, which we were talking about. Before were we even recording then? I don't know. Yeah, we recorded. Okay, all right. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, funny. I just got started. I, I should really start doing like a three, two, one, or something like that, so it feels more official. I'm just like, what's up, Did Kevin? we have the headphones on or not when <laughs> I said that? Um, but yeah, so I just posted about that, which we can go at some point. Actually, I, th- I think I might even be able to swing it back around. We'll we'll talk to that sh- about that show more. But I posted about that. I posted about. Uh, this is my teacher brain right now. I've got like I'm like five steps ahead. I, I know I know I the it. next like five paragraphs. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when like when there's something that happens to your community at school and you're like, we gotta stop everything we're talking about this. Mm. And you just on the spot, I've got the speech ready. Yeah. You know, so yeah. I haven't thought about it. But anyway, so yeah, I had I posted about that. At the end of the school year, I posted something. Um, but back when I was putting out my first album, The In-Between, which I released in 2017, jeez, it feels like much longer than that. Yeah, it's crazy. I thought it was like it was, 2016 was in my Mar- mind. I think it was March wow. 2017. Crazy. Um, I posted almost every day. Um, I, I, I did this like, and this is another example of money that I could just spend that. I spent like one or $2,000 on the social media it was called a reboot, mm-hmm. um, sneak attack media. I don't know if you've, I've heard of them. No. Or not. Um, you know, I was kind of skeptical, but it was a really good program. Yeah. It, it really taught me a lot. And, but anyway, I, through the things that I learned from that, I was able to start like branding myself online. And 
you know, I, I scheduled out like when I was going to post stuff and I was doing it all the time. It was a post a day. And my, my Instagram was like, started off maybe like I'd get 30 likes or something to where the, I got to the point where I was just getting a hundred or more likes on everything. And right, I thought it was really right. cool. Like yeah, you yeah, could just see totally. the growth that was happening yep. over the time. It, that didn't really happen a whole lot with me on Twitter. I think Instagram was the one that I picked that mm. I was like, I get this more. That makes sense, too, because you know? most people you know in real life are on Instagram and Facebook more than Twitter. Twitter's yeah. mostly strangers. It's like hard to build it from the ground up, I think. Yeah, and, and from conversations and just from watching your work, like I've seen like how it can be done on Twitter, and it's just not really my like natural totally, totally. go-to. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it happened with Instagram and um you know, I, but now, yeah, it has died off so much more to the point where I also just feel like if I was going to talk about my music right now on Instagram, I don't really know what I would say. Mm. Like, I mean, I have a show. I'm, I'm playing a show in September at Steel City. Um, so, like, that's something I'll start posting about um, soon. But, you know, other than that, it's not like it, – it, but back then, it was the whole message around the in-between and then the whole message around the album that I did for Brad. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that I was thinking about in all of this is like, I, when I said the in-between was only two years ago, so that was a 13 song record. I'd never been in a recording studio before. Um, I had written the songs over like a, you know, three, four year time period. And I was just kind of like, eh, let's just give this a shot. Like I was looking at maybe doing an acoustic album just to see what it would be like. But then I was talking with Chris at Chaplin's when I was playing a show and he was like, well, I, you know, this is a recording studio now and we should try things out. And mm-hmm. so we like worked on a song together and I was like, oh, this is sounding real. Like now I have to do this. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I could totally. actually have a rock album. Um, so we did that, put that out in 2017. That was a ton of work. And then uh, I was driving over here actually before I even really realized when I, I finally realized this. But Brad, so for those of you listening, Brad was my best friend growing up. He passed away in a in a accident. It was only really a few months after. Yeah, it was really that record soon. was out, yeah. which I had it in my head that it was like a year or two after. Wow! But it was, yeah, it was soon after. And so he was uh, he was riding his motorcycle. He got hit by a guy in a pickup truck who was um, drinking and had some other sorts of like drugs in his system. Um, so obviously that was. Like, for the rest of my life, that's going to be one of, if not the biggest, like, impactful yeah, things that has happened so to me. so defiant. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, I had to write a record for him, you know? I was like, what else am I going to do as a musician? Brad was drumming for me. He taught me how say, to play. He, he, dran- he drummed on the, the in-between, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. So he's he's recorded there. He played shows with me. And you said earlier in the podcast, just to reference back for anyone who maybe was listening and forgot you said that he's the one who essentially got you into music and got yeah. you into like the music scene he was in the he, local band that he he taught me how to yeah he was in the go around the go around still going strong mm-hmm. uh, alex sadek is he moved to nashville actually of course uh, yeah and i think anthony <laughs> might be following him soon uh but hopefully anthony's told people if they're listening to this right now <laughs> it probably won't come up in a month he's got a month's time All right, good to... good i think i think we'll be fine then. um but, yeah, and then Brad taught me how to play guitar. He got me into music. He took me to my first Switchfoot show, which, like, Switchfoot is the band, the thing that keeps me wanting to make music. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't for him. So I wrote a, a six-song EP for him 
And, and it was like right after. Yeah. It was like, like you literally yeah. just like you jumped on it right after. This was insane turnaround. So he passed away on June 2nd, 2017. And when I decided I was going to put out the record, it was like undoubtedly it is coming out on June 2nd, 2018. Like there was just no other way it was going to happen, mm. which set up an incredible timeline. And now I knew how to do things better. Yeah, because you'd done the record before. Yeah. yeah, but the writing even in itself was insane because, of course, I procrastinated some too. So I had like maybe one song done by, you know, I'm sure Judah would remember this too because he helped me out with a lot of these, but I I think it was maybe January. Okay. So then like we we must have recorded, gosh, it must have been in in March or April. So I wrote like five more songs in the next two months and put them together <laughs> with a band because the other thing I was, we were going to go into the studio and the drums and bass were getting done. Like mm-hmm. I was like, we are doing this like, like a live track. Yeah. Yeah. And way more streamlined than the process had been with the in between. Cause I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. Um, and Chris was even like, so I did it at chaplains again with Chris. Um, and it, he was impressed with how quickly we got done the, the first yeah, couple that's things. that's insane, especially, like, pushing the, the songwriting process off that long and then having to put it together with a band. I mean, it's one thing to, to even have a song written and trying to get it produced with a band. Another thing to, to do the writing and then yeah. right away be like, all right, band, let's yeah. go. And one of the songs I finished, and we practiced it for an hour, the last song on the album, which I think is a really good song. Mm-hmm. Like, I love it. We, we, like, played it. I mean, I wrote it for a lot longer than an hour, but the band played it for an hour. Yeah, and then it was, like, to, like it was done. get their parts. Yeah. And I remember Judah looked at me with an hour left in that practice, and I was like, we have one more. And he was like, it's not good. Like, he was just like, dude, it's not. Like, there's no way up. we're getting that done yeah. in an hour. And I was yeah. like, no. Like, we're going to get it done. And he was like, okay, you know. And, I mean, part of the only reason that it got done in that hour is because Judah's brilliant yeah. at what he does. And he's and he's incredible at coming up with really cool-sounding parts. Um, so, yeah, it got done. And so it was this incredible, like, emotional thing for me to be writing these songs and also then the whole time thinking they have to be good enough for Brad. Like, this can't be some crap record. Right. Like, you just kind of rushed it, and it's like, oh, well, yeah, my, my best friend passed away. Like, I yeah, just, just going to do some music. Yeah, no, yeah, it was like, right. it had to be, because I was also still thinking of it as, like, potential career moving forward. Right. Like, it had to be better than the in-between, and it had to be as good as it could be, because it was for Brad. Yeah. And it turned out really good. Like, yeah. it's I think it's a lot better than the in-between, and I'm really proud of it. I, I still... I still listen to those songs and play those songs, and I think they're. I think each one of them is better than most of the stuff that was on the in between. Yeah. But that being said, now we're looking at, in the course of maybe, a year and a half, all of that work. Of course, I'm not. Like, of course, I've kind of taken the past year off. Yeah. Like. Right. And even after, and I have those like, like you were talking about the reasons to come to the show. Like the in between had a theme. That whole album was about. Being in an in-between place in life, you know, moving from college to first jobs and things was yeah, where yeah, I was right, at. Of course. The record for Brad, obviously, like the whole community of people who were there supporting each other through this. Yeah, like friends and family mourning. and yeah, 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 which was a huge group of people because Brad was not just like, he wasn't just a good person. Like, 
He was a good person who knew as many people as possible. Mm. Whenever he met them, he remembered that conversation. And if he saw them two years later, he'd bring it up. And those people would be like, what? Like, yeah. Like, yeah, we talked about this, this, and this at Wawa on, on <sighs> Route 3. and you know. Yeah, yeah. So oh, I just got goosebumps. I had the gut. It's so, like, yeah. Mm. Yeah. It... It's unbelievable still, and, um, you know, but I have I had those groups of people coming together for those things, but still after that, it was like, you know, I can keep doing this, but I need to take a, I need to take a break. I need to, like, when I get back into it and play those songs, like, that story is always going to be part of it, and Brad's always going to be a reason why I play, um, but, yeah, I just kind of think, look, looking at it now, I'm like, of course you're taking a break. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's almost like it worked both ways for you. Like, it almost worked as a cathartic um, passion project in a way where it's like you said, it's bringing a community of people together and it's for your best friend. There's all, there's all this purpose locked into it. At the same time, it worked as a emotional traumatic drain. Because yeah. it's like, this isn't just like some, you know, oh, I'm going to write about this thing in my life and it's just me expressing myself like this is your best friend that tragically passed away as a young adult i mean there's nothing it's not like a bright and happy story like this is something that as you're processing it in such a short turnaround too i mean just like you said just to kind of i mean just to reiterate that i mean you you put out an album your first album with him recording with him Mm -hmm. Uh, four months later he tragically passes away and right away you're like i'm gonna produce another album and it's gonna be about him i mean that's like Packing all of that trauma and that like just pr- and just the processing that goes with something like that is insane. And and on there's there's that level of it, but then again there's the level of purpose driven nature that that mm-hmm. is inevitably attached to it. I mean like whether it's conscious or unconscious. I mean of course like you said it's bringing people together. He's a great guy. Everybody knew it, so it was like an easy way. Like people were like inspired to come together for that, and which is amazing. But then also like when that's over, like when you put that chapter, like when you close the chapter, right. Yeah. That's like, again, a, it's, it, it's in part a sigh of relief. It's also in part like this dump of energy because you just put the past essentially two years of your life into this thing and now it's over. So yeah. now what, right now yeah. you're like, you're, you're wor- you, this whole time you've been working a job, you've been dating your girlfriend, you've moved out. You're yeah. like, your life has essentially moved on but you don't have the same, uh, again, not trying, this is, it sounds weird contextualizing it this way. I'm not trying to say like his death was like a purpose that you and I'm, you know, yeah, I'm trying to say, yeah. but like it added this element to your life where it was like, I'm going to, I'm going to make something of this for my best friend. And mm-hmm. that inevitably is, is a driving factor of your passion and what you were doing. So having that be gone and having that chapter closed, I'm sure was like, again, a sigh of relief and also just like, what, what next? Like yeah. what now? Like what do yeah. I do moving forward? I remember even the feeling at that release show for that record, which you were at, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember. It was so good. Well, Literally you. like a flawless. That was a crazy performance. <laughs> it's nuts. It was, yeah, I remember, uh, like, so I did all the talking at the beginning mm-hmm. because I knew, like, when I got to those songs, I wasn't going to be able to talk about them yet. Yeah. Um, there, were so- there were lines in those songs that still, when I play them, I, like, will tear up while I'm singing them. Mm. Um. So yeah, we we did. I mean, and that night even really, it's just a good summary of this whole conversation. So I did all this talking about what happened and what I was doing. We played a we played a bunch of songs from the in between, and then there was that 
<laughs> which this will get me. Remember, I was five paragraphs ahead. This is going to get me to the next thing too. <laughs> Teacher brain. We play, we played that. <laughs> we played that clip, which I'll explain after I finish this thought, and then the whole friendship EP. And I remember afterward, like talking to everybody, and then. You know, there's this image of, like, rock stars after shows that got our party and, you know, do all this stuff and, like, drink and everything. I went home and I was just, like, I was zapped because it was, as much as that was, like, an incredible night, it was, like, that's what I was, that's the point of it. Like, that night was the point of it mm. for us all to be there a year after Brad died in the same room. Or at least, like, if people couldn't make it, like, talking that yeah, whole it was day. A it was a memoriam, literally. Yeah. yeah. And when it was over, it was like, that's what all the work was for, for the past. Even, even I would say the work that I did with Brad as a musician, all of it was for that moment. Mm. To have that purpose that night. And, and when it was over, you know, it was like, I didn't really need to, I didn't need to play another show. Even though I have. You know, it was just like, that was the purpose of mm. all of that work. Um, so the clip <laughs> from in between. So I still, I'm going to tell this story and I still just don't even believe it. So I don't know if I've described strong enough first that I love switch. Switchfoot. <laughs> like I love them. I'm not even Christian. I know they have a lot of Christian, like, <laughs> I was going to ask, and everything. Just like, yeah, just in yeah. general, people listening. Because, and when people hear Switchfoot, they think Christian rock band. There's a good band. Yeah, yeah. And they even have said many times they're not a Christian rock band. They're all Christians. And you can see when you think about the writing, the Christian aspects of the songs. But I would argue that every single song that has a Christian or God related thing, you could easily translate to something of else. Of course. Yeah. Unless, you know? yeah like, unless it's like really the corny, overt, like, old school worship music that just like is really just over the top like most songs yeah you can just swap in meaning for for words it's just and I know that that's intentional from John too and I like that's why I can still love them and not be Christian like love their music right not not the people (laughs) (laughs) John Foreman if you're listening to this (laughs) I love many Christians that has nothing that's not what I was trying to say that's so funny but like I can still love their music because it's not overtly a religious thing Mm -hmm. um but I think a lot of their songs and you hear this from John's interviews too it's they go from places they go from dark broken places to writing songs of hope. Mm-hmm. Talk about the pain of whatever is going on in life, and they make it hopeful. Dude, The Cure for Pain, John Foreman's oh, solo yeah. song, so good. Sorry. Just yeah, like, amazing. Just hit me, yeah. <laughs> or like, do you know The Shadow Proves the Sunshine? No, I don't think I know that one. It's a, so it's a Switchfoot song. They, they don't play a whole lot anymore. Um, but just that even line, The Shadow yeah, Proves the Sunshine. Yeah, it's a great line. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, so it's gotten, I, again, I was like 16 or so when I started listening to them with Brad, and... Um, seen them like double digit times. So we went not so a couple days after Brad passed, like we were listening to one of Switchfoot songs called Live It Well. And it was recently released at that time. Um, and the messages were just like, you know, part of the lines are, life is short, I want to live it well. And it's like, it was just the perfect song for that moment because Brad's life was cut short. And he lived every moment of it well. Like mm. there even there were things that it's like it it seemed like he wasn't thinking about thirty years from now because he just wanted right now to be 
great. And not even in the way of like he went and did ridiculous like danger. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't yeah, like yeah. that. It was yeah, more yeah. just like I'm going to go way out of my way to make this person happy right now. Mm. Um, and f- friends, family, acquaintances. That's how it was. So uh, I tweeted at John Foreman and asked him to write – those lyrics, because I wanted to get a tattoo of it. I'd seen he had done this before. He handwrites stuff and people get tattoos of it. So mm-hmm. I have it now. Um, he yeah, t- I was looking at it. It's he, cool. He tweeted back like less than a day. My phone was blowing up. Like I turned off Twitter for notifications after this. So I knew like I think I got up, went to the bathroom, came back, like was about to get back into bed and saw my phone. Like you could like scroll for days yeah, with these yeah, like yeah. messages. If... So I was like, oh, like I just started crying immediately. And then I opened it and realized he got, he wrote back to me and was like, so sorry for your loss, like, you know. And so I got the tattoo. That summer, I think it was August. Is today August 7th? Yes. I think it – so geez, it was two years ago today. Wow. Okay. We went to a Switchfoot show and some of – um you know, mutual friends through Brad that I have tweeted at John Foreman. I didn't even know this. Tweeted at John Foreman and said, like, that we were going to be at the show, sent him a picture of my tattoo – um, and so they played live it well that day and dedicated it to Brad. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I still remember the feeling I had when he said like, and you didn't know, so I had just no like, idea yeah, he was going to do yeah. this. So I'm like up to, towards the front listening and like, it gets real quiet and he starts playing the acoustic guitar and he's like, I was reading online and I just knew just from at that point, I just yeah. knew you know, he said, I'm reading online about how this next song has, like, meant a lot to some people who are, um, you know, dealing with the tragic loss of a friend. Uh, so this one's for Brad. Um, which, like, I, I hope, yeah, whatever you believe in Afterlife and everything, I hope Brad saw that because yeah, he would have yeah. just pooped himself. <laughs> like, John Foreman dedicating a song to him, yeah, you know? Yeah, um, And then later in the song... He, it got to a point where like it quieted it back down. It was like the bridge, and he was like, "So Brad's friends, where are you all at?" You know, we were kind of all over the place. Oh, you're you're all over the place. And I I had a cut off shirt. I put my arm up, and again I'm in the front. So he sees my tattoo. It's like on the inner, yeah, like my right bicep, I guess, if I have biceps. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And he goes, "Oh, is that the tattoo?" And I like yell yes, and he goes, "Looks great, man. What's your name?" I'm Kevin. And he tells everyone to say hi to me, and he comes down off the stage and gives me a hug. And I'm like holding back tears right now. I just like still can't believe it was such a like I don't know seemingly simple thing for him to do, but like that moment even by itself helped me get through this. Yeah, that's that's some like powerful kindness, you know, that, yeah. that he didn't have to do, that yeah. no one has to do. Yeah, and and that's what that band's all about. Yeah, and when I feel inspired again to write, like that's why. Because if I could do that, like that literally changed my life. And, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, it, it's just it's unbelievable. But luckily, that that whole show got recorded. Um, so I have the audio of that too, which is another, like, of all the shows I'm going to record, yeah. I got this one. Like, it's not just phone audio. We got actually. Yeah, it's amazing. And, uh, you know, so I, I took the clip of him saying that stuff and put that, that was the thing in between. Yeah, at the, at the, at the, the, show. At the show, yeah. 
Then, so I always think that it's like, okay, that's like wrapped up. That's the end of the story, right? So we go to the show a couple of days ago and we got, uh, my parents were very nice, got us uh, box seats at the Fillmore, like VIP seats. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were like up top and I'm thinking, you know, we're not, we're not, there's not going to be another interaction, right? He doesn't have to dedicate the song to somebody anymore. He did that. Like he doesn't have to like, you know do anything yeah. wild like that. It's just going to be a regular Switchfoot show, which is, like, amazing as it is. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. life-changing as it is. <laughs> uh, so we're up in the box, and so I'm really thinking, like, I'm not even going to be, I'm not close to the stage to, like, give this guy a high five or something. But John's uh, an elusive front man. Like, he gets off stage and does some crazy stuff. So he's walking out into the crowd and then just walks right over to where we are and climbs up the thing like, climbs up the, whatever you call it. The box the, thing. The, up the balcony. Yeah, yeah. And he's right there in front of me. <laughs> and I'm like, this is, you gotta be kidding me. So I, like, give my phone to Christy. She's taking pictures. And he's singing, like, hanging off this ledge. And then he turns around, and I'm like, hey, John, I show him the tattoo again just to see if it'll maybe, yeah. you know, jog his memory or whatever. And I was like, it's really nice to see you again. And he's like, it's good to see you, too. And I'm just, like, looking directly in his eyes, too, again, of, like, my hero. Like, and just that moment, having that moment where of, like, you have changed my life in so many positive ways. And you just happen to climb up here. Like, I know he didn't, he couldn't have even seen me if he he would have recognized me, which I'm sure he didn't. Yeah. You know? He climbed up right there. Like, what are the chances? Yeah. Powerful. he, He took my Switchfoot Bro Am hat, which... Brad and I went to California to see this show that they do on the beach, and I, we got that hat there, so it means a lot to me. He took that hat and wore it, and he's, like, <laughs> you know, singing and stuff. And and then people are, like, so there's a tension brought to me because of this, too, because, you know, we gave each other, you know, like a high five or whatever. And uh, people were videotaping because he's climbing up this thing. So after the show, I'm seeing on Twitter all these videos and I, like, bumped into a couple people who had taken them at the show. And, then, like, then it gives me this opportunity to talk about Brad again. Yeah, yeah, right. Which I just, I, you know, you asked me before if it was, like, an okay thing to talk about. I love talking about him. You yeah. know, it's obviously it's emotional, but, you know, and especially stuff like that, too, at a Switchfoot show. Like, just to get a chance to, like, share how good of a person Brad was and and how good of a people Switchfoot right. are. Well, and it speaks to their messaging, like you've been saying, that the message of, like, hope that they bring. And it's that that I think uh, brings this whole this whole just, you know, eternally mysterious concept of death that we all struggle with. No one understands. It's, it's just the eternal mystery. And we grapple with it because it's, it, it seems like it's permanent and it's it's awful and we don't know how to process it. And it, that attitude essentially looks at death and, and it treats it. You know, it, it, it does the process, like you said, like a song by Switchfoot or John Foreman or whatever. It'll start with the grief and with the loss and all that. And then it rises up into hope and celebration in some way. And mm-hmm. the messaging, like you're saying, kind of like the Christian parallel, whatever, how you can kind of swap in, whatever. I think it's beautiful in that way because it is so universally relatable in the sense where death, I mean, it, it, it's, so, it's such a huge topic. I mean, it's like, how do you even start? But I mean... 
people come at it so differently and you, depending on the person who died, depending on the people who surround the person who died in the aftermath, like there's so many, so many factors that factor into how you process death and what death feels like to someone. Like there's people obviously who growing up, maybe they had like an abusive dad and then that dad dies. You know what I mean? And then that like that, that impact of death is such like a different violent, just horrible, like pit, pit creating feeling for them forever maybe and, uh, and then there's situations where someone de- lives till 90 years old and they pass away and then it's just like oh well they lived a great life like they're they're in a better place maybe or whatever it is and what i'm getting at is just this idea that you know when someone dies it's always tragic no matter what or no matter if they're they're old young obviously it's more tragic when they're young because of the experience of life and all that but at some point the hope and the ideal circumstance again just reiterate ideal circumstance because not every person is perfect not every situation is perfect but the hope is that the people surrounding that person who we lost um reach that point of being able to celebrate their life right because it's like they're gone so it's like what would they want you to do you know this is like the whole thing with people who are married for years like 20 30 40 years spouse dies and it's like 10, 15, sometimes forever. Maybe they never get remarried, but in a lot of cases, it takes 10 and 15 years. There's grief, there's mourning. It's like identity crisis. What, what am I doing with my life? And then they eventually make the decision to to look for happiness again. They look to get in another relationship because they they come to that that point of being like, I need to celebrate this loved one's life and what they meant to me and others. And they would want me to be happy. Like yeah. they would want me to celebrate them and to, to keep going. Cause like, that's what life is. Like it doesn't, right. it doesn't stop like in it's horrible. Like it's like, I can't even like re- again, reiterate this enough for anyone I've experienced. I, I've had multiple friends of mine commit suicide or, or die from ODs, car accidents. Like it's the worst thing ever, not trying to downplay it whatsoever, but there's just this thing that happens to every person where you make that decision. And some people, depending on the trauma, depending on the circumstance, it might define them for the rest of their lives in this horrible way. And they can never get past that, that, that bump in their mind of just like, how do I process death now? And that's horrible. But the hope I think in death in, in what you're trying to get at with all this, with, with creating the album, with having this memoriam dedicated to this great person, having, bringing people together, um, repeatedly over time, like because of it, and then having this experience with John Foreman, it's such like a, a beautiful representation of that celebration of this great person's life, which I think is the hope in death. It's like nothing is forever. Like you and I are going to die. Every person, the world's going to die. Every animal's going to die. All life dies. This is just the site. This is what we, this is is what life does. Like life dies and then new life comes and and it's horrible because it's it's impossible to process that because we don't have an understanding of an afterlife or whatever but it's like what do you do with that like if your pet dies it's the worst thing ever right but it's like what do you do with that your pet's gone like it's like you can choose to be traumatized and and just distraught forever but i mean at some point the hope is that you get to the point where you can get another pet right yeah Or, or at least that you can move on maybe you don't get another pet but maybe you're just like it's so bad that that happened, but like it happened. And while I had that pet, it was amazing. Like we had great times together. Like you just celebrate it, you know? And that's like, that's what's so great about, um, just the story that you, you unfold within this tragedy, because it's not, it's not a situation like so many people's unfortunate situations are where it's just the tragedy is embroidered with, with just horrible circumstances. And there's no hope to be found, but you found the hope, you know yeah. what I mean? Like the friends and family of Brad found the hope yeah. in this, which is just such an important 
message. Like even just talk going back to correlate it with like this whole concept of you wanting to be a songwriter as a career and then wrestling with this like idea of of having an identity around it and, and pursuing it as like the the main goal of your life and how you don't know if to be a realist or an idealist like how to balance your your work life balance or work passion balance it's like it works the same way it's like keeping keeping that optimism keeping that hope kind of like as a uh, like an anchor, or not, not that's a terrible example. Not as an anchor, as a <laughs> as something that keeps you buoyant, right? Yeah, as like a yeah, life yeah. jacket, yeah. almost like it's like you can anti anchor. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> anti anchor. You can have all the layers of like doubt and self criticism and cynicism and nihilism or whatever might be layered on. Well, I guess not nihilism. That's the opposite of hope. But I mean, have these layers on top as long as there's some kind of life jacket that's you know keeping you bobbing on the surface. Because I mean, life. It doesn't slow down, right? Like right. tragedy doesn't stop. Like you know, right. the older you get, more people are gonna die. More <laughs> people are gonna get divorced. More people are gonna lose their jobs, get get sick. Like horrible things happen all the time, and you just you learn to deal with it. And even the people who are going like this is like the beautiful thing about actually not the beautiful thing. The the if there is a beautiful redeeming thing about people who are in those like uh, mortality phases of life, whether maybe they got cancer or like there's something. Uh, that that's just gonna they know it's gonna like lead them to the end of their life maybe they're just in their last moments like it's beautiful when those people can can uh can take that just horrible energy of like coming to the end and then just be reach that acceptance point it's almost like a buddhist thing you know where it's just like you reach the point of oneness where you're like i let it all go like i had i had life like i had a great life um i'm in this moment right now i'm thankful like you just kind of get to that point, you know, and that's yeah. like the hope we we all have, that we all seek to have, which is like when that moment comes or whatever it is that we can just like be one with it because we don't know how we're going to go. Like we don't know if we get to choose it or not, but you hope that like wherever you're at in life, there's like a peace that comes with with the loss, you know. Yeah. And it's like I think with the way John writes, he like tries to get to that place before the song's done. Mm. And I feel like that's really, really hard. And I try to do that with Brad's record, too, of forcing myself to think, like, I'm not going to write a six-song record that's sad. Like like I said, the point was to celebrate his life. Mm-hmm. So trying to, like, force myself at hyperspeed to, to come to that point of acceptance so that I could write, which I would say... Alex Cardio, who's, who's been playing in my band for a while and worked on that record a lot and was also good friends with Brad, he described it well. He said there's three and a half happy songs on this record, a really sad one, and then it's like towards acceptance. Mm. But the happy ones, because I was like, let's celebrate the early, you know? We've yeah, been friends right. for a long time. Let's celebrate being kids and like, you know, getting off the bus and, you know, we used to play uh, like baseball with a a tennis ball and a wiffle ball bat and in his, in his, uh, <laughs> like in the driveway behind his house and we would hit it up on other people's decks and have to like climb up and oh, get the yeah. ball. It's like stuff like that. That That's what I want to talk about on the record. I didn't want to just like whine about how he died for or six just, or just, Yeah, Or just be bogged with despair. Yeah. Like you're saying. You don't want it yeah. to just like to tip the, you don't want, you don't want the scales to tip either way. You don't want it to yeah. be just like pure optimism and like, it's yeah. all about the goodness, right? right. It's not, right? Yeah, it's no, that, it's, it's a, that mix, right? Yeah, and uh, I, I still like, am just so thankful that Brad did such a good job in his relationships with people before he died. That after he died, 
all of those relationships came together to make to like make the hope of this. Mm. Um, I wouldn't even know my girlfriend if it wasn't for him, which that was another like coming to that realization was a whole nother like That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, he's like permanently embedded into that relationship. Yeah, yeah, and the way it's going, I don't see that relationship ending either. So it's like, it's just wild. Yeah, you know. Um, but and so many other close friends that were were friends that like I wasn't close with, but after he passed away, we got so much closer. Mm-hmm. And like, it's almost like Brad put all the pieces in place for us to get over it when he was living. <sighs> yeah, which you know, obviously. I don't know. He didn't know, but it's just the way he lived his life set up things to be okay. Yeah, yeah. Which is a beautiful thing, which is like what I was just kind of trying to, like stumbling, like stumbling to get the words to to say. I mean, it's it's a, uh, it's amazing in the sense that you had that opportunity because that's such a yeah. It's it's what in all of like the archetypal literature like if you look through all the the religions you know what i mean and like in the great literature on death and all that like that is the sort of hopeful side yeah throughout history you know what i mean like if you're going to have a, a worldview or an outlook based around the concept of death i mean that's the one you want right like yeah. that's the one you want to point to as being this hopeful narrative that you can you can literally go through that arc where it's like you you hit rock bottom right in the beginning it's rock bottom and you go through that arc of processing it and just like living through it like you can't skip it right like you yeah. can't skip the trauma you can't skip the morning and then just like the, the the pit in your stomach that you feel for days and weeks and months and sometimes years like you can't skip that period but then eventually like the arc comes and you, you get to that point where you start to remember those good times like you remember the times where you're playing with those that with the wiffle ball and the, and the tennis ball and like it, these things start to flood your memory and your and your perspective and a lot of that par- again it p- kind of parallels with the i don't want to use the word privileges but like it, it sort of parallels with where you're at in life right i mean mm-hmm. like if you're in a sunken place in life like maybe you're in a bad relationship or you're in like a like just a bad job whatever it might be and your your circumstances aren't great your health is bad it's very hard to get to that hopeful place because you're already like way down by life you know what i mean so it's it's good to have you know it's it's uh, part of it's a roll of the dice but part of it's you know also just like it's great to to build your life to the point you know like you're saying where you've been focusing so much you focus so much on the work on the music itself and now on you as a person and like your actual job and your your relationship with uh, your girlfriend now and it's like and in doing so you're doing him a service you know what i mean by sewing into you that's what you're doing in in a way like it's paying off to to his memory in the sense that it's like you are living your life to the fullest you're fulfilling the person you're meant to be and that does exactly the thing that he would have wanted you to do. So it's yeah. like, wow. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it works. That's like the ideal. If there is, you know, again, it's so weird talking about this stuff because none of it's ideal, yeah, right? Like, you, I hate the verbiage around it. Right. I'm not trying to be like, he died, but. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, but it kind of inevitably sounds like that when you're trying to create these, these like narrative arcs around the topic. And it's such a it's crazy, difficult topic to talk about. Yes, I mean, obviously... If he was still alive, that would be better. But, like, you can't control, like, I I can't control that guy making terrible decisions to kill my best friend. Like, yeah. I can't control that. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, I mean, it's, you got to, and again, I, even this, if Brad had never introduced Switchfoot into my life, 
would I be as like optimistic in bad situations? I, you know, I don't think so. Mm. And I'm and I'm not always an optimistic person. Of course, but, yeah, no one is. Hopefully, no one is. You know, but there's. I think I do think that I'm happier than average, and it's obviously not because I'm making a lot of money. You know, it's not it's not because I have a lot of like things. I have so, I have privileges. You know, I have privileges, but. Um, I, I think a lot of it has to do with with mindsets like that. Yeah, and, yeah. And I, you're, I, I was never really a tattoo person, but I knew that getting this "Life is Short, Live It Well" on my arm—it's that reminder too of like, like I'm never I'm never gonna forget Brad. But there's a point where you stop thinking about him every hour of every day. Yes, and that's that's what I was trying to get at. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm there. I think about him. Maybe not even every day, but probably. Still close to every day. Yeah. Um, but there's still plenty of times when you're all in on something else that you're doing, and that's when you need the reminder. Like, yeah, wh- when yeah. I'm all in at school, and there's something frustrating going on, because, you know, you want your kids to be perfect, because, like, I love the crap out of every one of them. I want them to 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 be perfect, because I, I just care so much about them that I want them to see every success they possibly can. Yeah. And part of me is like, and can you please, like, grow up and change this crappy, crappy world <laughs> and country that we have right now? You know, the, yeah. the frustration's coming out. But yeah. but in that, you become frustrated when they make mistakes. Of course. This is like loving parent syndrome. Yeah. yeah. It's like the same exact thing. Yeah. Yeah. But in those moments, it's like, that's when I need that reminder. Life's short. Live it well. Be patient. These kids are wonderful. You're at a great school. You know, they they are working their hardest to become as good of people as they can, whether they like math or not, you know. And that's when I need those reminders sometimes when it's like you've been in the grind of school for a while. So it's nice because every once in a while, too, a kid will just like kind of look and be like, you know, you have a tattoo. Like, what (laughs) does that say? That's even like, yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't go into the full story. Yeah, right. I mean, you can't give the speech every time. It's like there's a yeah. lot of context there. We but. got it. We have to learn how to find the area of this triangle. You come back to me at recess. We'll talk about this. My, my favorite songwriter wrote it. It's cool. We'll talk about it later. Please like, take notes. Not yeah. on this. Yeah. All we're talking about. Like, <laughs> That's so good. Now I'll tell him. What, do you know what episode number this is? I, well, I'll know when it's You'll out. Know yeah. later. So I'll say, I'll tell him, <laughs> episode number, da da da. What's really good? Oh my god, <laughs> you're getting go you'll get find the full it. story. You, yeah, uh, you'll get too much of the story. You'll know great. too much about me afterward, and you'll but you'll know that I love you too. <laughs> I so said perfect. that. Oh my god, I have to. I, I just thought of, I thought about this earlier, and it just was reminding me as you brought up the teaching in the school. I have to tell you that I. I've never been a huge fan of Switchfoot. I love John Foreman. I think his songwriting is amazing. I'm just never a, great, a big fan of the band. Like, not yeah. like I thought they were bad or anything. I just never really got into it, you know? Right. Part of the reason I never got into Switchfoot, if there's, and I don't think I still have friends from high school. Like, I didn't, I wasn't popular in high school, so I haven't stayed in touch with many people. Um, but anyone who went to high school with me or, or school with me, I should say, in, in our district would know this. Uh, in eighth grade, it might have been in the ninth grade too, but I wasn't there in ninth grade. I switched schools, but in eighth grade, all the way through from the start, the first day of class in eighth grade to the last day in class, every morning in like homeroom or whatever, uh, the song "We Were Made to Live" 
whatever oh, it's we called. We were meant to live. We yeah, were meant to, meant to live, right? That played yeah. on the morning show thing every morning because the girl who was in charge of like that department or whatever would love Switchfoot. Yeah. And it became literally a school wide, like not joke, but just like. Everyone would be like, oh, my God, that song. Yeah, Every I, morning. And, uh, and it's crazy. How I, cause I barely remember anything from school. I have such a terrible memory. But I remember that song. Geez. And I just remember being like, oh, my God. Because it's not even like the – it's a great song. But when you hear a song every day, you're oh, just like, yeah, I oh, wouldn't, my I God. I wouldn't like Switchfoot either if I yeah. dealt with that. I'm, like, happy so that funny. this girl likes them that much. But I'm also not happy at her because she just ruined an amazing <laughs> band for the entire school. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a, it was a, it was what is eighth grade. So there was at the time that they they've changed the system now. Now it's like sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. At the time it was eighth and ninth grade were in this building. So yeah, two grades each. Each uh, class was like five hundred people, I think. And oh, missing out. Ruined ruined it for everybody. No no Switchfoot fans were in that school like, now. <laughs> the other thing the other thing that confuses me about this, if I was going to be on a morning show like that and I was in charge of and I was going to play a Switchfoot song every day, yeah, it, I, it meant to live might not get played once a whole year. Yeah. Like, I love that song, but that's like, that is their number one, like, most famous song they've ever written, right. like, is the reason they can continue to play for years and years and years. They still love the song, which also, I think, says a lot about John Foreman's writing and, like, them as people. And it does have a great message. Yeah. But, like, you can't play the same on, song yeah. every day, no matter what it is. Yeah. I don't care how much you, like... I don't know. No, it, it, it just it sucks the, the magic. Ears. Yeah, it sucks the magic, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. You can't do that. <laughs> so I'm sorry. I had to. I had to totally derail you for a second because I ha- I've literally I did not remember that until this conversation. <laughs> like the last time I probably thought about that was eighth grade, and now I'm just just piecing together in my mind the PTSD I have that has led me down a path to not listen to Switchfoot, and I think that's where it started. That has to be it. Because I like, like I said, I like John Foreman. I've listened to, not, I, I haven't kept up. I'm not, I don't listen to that much music, honestly. I've, I've listened to so many podcasts and, like, yeah. that, that type of stuff. But, uh, but yeah, like, I, I've always enjoyed his music, so it's just a funny, funny little tidbit. But you were, we were talking, just to kind of jump back into kind of, like, the the trajectory that we were on. Um, we were talking a little bit before we started recording, and I forget exactly what you mentioned to me, but you, I remember you said something about how in your school or just maybe particularly in your classroom, you kind of have the the privilege or the ability to communicate uh, pretty personal stuff with some students or all the students. I don't yeah. know how it works. Like, I don't know if you wanted to get into just, like, your relationship with students and kind of how what your outlook is as a teacher in, in this situation. Yeah, so I, I work at this very small Quaker school in Philadelphia called Frankfurt Friends School. It's pre-K through eighth grade, and there's like a max of 20 kids per grade. Um, so they have one class per grade. And it's not a public school. It's a private school. And Quakers, you know, can have different uh, like political views, but I would say typically you get a lot more of like the liberal side. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean – for I'm and I'm like I would say I'm new I'm still fairly new to Quakerism because I'm not like technically a Quaker but I work at a Quaker school and so this will be my third year I'm going into so I've like learned a lot of yeah, the past right, couple of years. Of but one one thing that people might know about Quakerism if they know anything is that Quakers don't like war. Yeah, um, it's it's a non, the religion of nonviolence. Yeah, similar to Amish and and uh, Mennonites and yeah. Yeah, and it's also a very like. 
I think respecting religion because you can be Christian and be Quaker. You can be like Buddhist and be Quaker. You can, you know, you can be sort of another like yeah, it's inclusive. religion. Yeah. Right. Because you worship in silence and it, you're kind of, you're working on finding like that inner light. You can also be atheist and be Quaker, which yeah. I, you I, could be, and you could be atheist and be Buddhist too. I mean, these are all, yeah. they kind of interlock in some ways. So I would say I'm, like, maybe not fully atheist, but, like, definitely close to there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I I really come to, like, Quakerism. But anyway, with that sort of setup and the really tight, close-knit community and it not being a public school, I think we're doing things at our school that make school better for the kids that are there and are going to make them better humans when they leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm a math teacher. So for me saying that, like usually math teachers have nothing to do with that part of it. Right? Yeah, it's right. like, I want to learn math. And <laughs> there are many days where I am like, yeah, we got to really focus here and learn math. But the reason I, one of the reasons I love this job so much is because I'm not just a math teacher there. Um, well, another title of mine is a seventh grade advisor. So like the seventh grade class, they're like my main class. Mm-hmm. Um, but when there's social issues going on within the class, I'm sure you remember middle school, maybe, you, you, know, you, you did just say you forgot most of school, but like <laughs> in middle school, there's a lot of social issues oh going on. Oh, God, yeah. Well, and it's puberty. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's got to be, and I even will tell this to kids sometimes, like middle school is like probably the worst like time of life. It's just so hard to to manage yourself even and like new relationships and like y'all are like learning more about the world and everyone's more able there's another reason why i love teaching middle schoolers they're like able to produce good thoughts and good work yeah you know younger kids are cute but that's my my (laughs) my preference there is that middle schoolers are funny even in an adult way yeah right um and so with that it's like, well, what do you do? You, do you ignore the social stuff because it's not your place because it's a school, which I think is a message from public schools for the most part. And I understand why. I'm not trying to, like, bash them. I get it. There's a lot of, like, legal issues. Yeah, like the boundaries and, that you can't, like, impede into certain, like, uh, like if a child tells you that their mom is beating them or if yeah. there's, like, some danger or something, you have to, like, legally then report yeah. that type Yeah, that type of stuff. Or if, or if the teacher's too close to a kid, then, yeah, like, they're, exactly. you know, they got to get fired because... Yep. They did something bad or whatever. You know, so I get that. But, you know, I, I just think we take a different approach where it's like we know that there's certain things going on in the world that we don't have answers to and that you're dealing with at too young of an age, partially because of, you know, the Internet and everything, Instagram and all that. The kids just see more. Yeah. Are exposed to more jokes so they don't really understand necessarily. Or they, like, get the joke but they don't get the implications. Yeah. Um, but because we have these conversations with the kids, they're also, I think, more able to ask teachers questions that I would have never asked a teacher. Mm. I never would ask my parents. Well, because you're like the arbiter at that point. Like, I, I brought this up literally just at the conference I spoke at yesterday. Did, did you ever watch the show Big Little Lies? It's on HBO. It's, it's new. It's a newer think show. So. There was an episode. This is a really brief tangent that ties into this. There was just uh, this past the season just ended just mm-hmm. like last week or something like that. Um, there's an episode in the season where I think it's first graders that, that are in the that are like in the storyline. And there's an episode where the teachers are talking about climate change with the students, like the first graders or whatever. And then 
the the kids obviously go home. They talk to their parents about parents freak out. And there's like this big parent teacher conference where all the parents are like outraged. The teachers like, why are you making my kids anxious about climate change or whatever? Like this isn't your job. They're in their children. Like they shouldn't be whatever. And the, it's such an interesting episode because the teacher essentially says the thing is is that almost all of the students already knew about it because they've yeah. been looking on smartphones and they've been hearing it from other people, older siblings, etc. And they don't understand it, so they're already afraid and confused. So it's our job as the teacher to essentially be the arbiter of that information because yeah. it helps them then ask the questions and process that through, which is what you're explaining in this way. That's perfect. I yeah. gotta see the show. That's, yeah, it's, oh, it's, that's it's fantastic. A, it's such a good show. Yeah, it's phenomenal. That it's really a beautiful explanation of it. And I think I think at my school, for the most part, obviously I don't I can't speak for every parent and every family, but for the most part, they're on board with that, which is the cool thing. Mm-hmm. Like, if we talk about climate change, which is not my area of expertise, but, like, even still as a math teacher, like, I have enough freedom if that comes up. Like, we're going to talk about it. Yeah. Like, the parents aren't going to be like, why would you ever talk about that? Right, right. Because I think we also try, and and I'm guilty of not being great at this sometimes, of making sure that the communication is with the family, too. So it's mm-hmm. like, you know, we, we're talking about this kind of thing in, in school or, like, you know, so-and-so and I had a conversation about this today. I just wanted to let you know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, even I, I brought this up this time. I'm sure this was before we put on the headphones and started recording, <laughs> but we were talking about some of like the language that people see. And again, to reiterate, kids see it's not the teacher's fault. They're hearing of this or the parents fault. Just wait the way the world it's is just information everywhere now. Yeah. They see yeah. all this information. So, and this one frustrates me that this, this, uh, this information was out there in this way. But so uh, a, a kid in my class is watching ESPN and Stephen A. Smith's on there. And uh, Stephen A. Smith says that Cam Newton's thick, no homo. And the student asked me, like, is that okay to say? Like, and we had a real conversation about why it's not. Like, you know, we, I was just like, why does, why does Stephen A. Smith, who is famous as all heck, have to add in that no homo. Like, yeah. we don't care if you're gay. If you were gay, great. Like, I, like you don't need to send that message because the message he's sending is also that it's not okay to be gay. Right. And our kids are, like, really thinking through that. Like, really starting to think about, like, oh, yeah. Like, yes, it's just a funny joke. But... It's really not funny. Yeah, because... like, like Stephen, like his audience is is a little bit. It, it skews a little older, and it's it's ESPN, so it's a lot of like like dads and like yeah. and older males watching this just right. like leisurely, and so there's a lot more of just space for that edgy type of humor. But in that same exact vein, like you're saying, ESPN is one of those shows that is just on in people's houses all the time. All like, the it's time. just on the background noise. Yeah. Like, of course, kids are just going to be in the room seeing this guy. Yeah, I, wa- I watched ESPN all the time growing up. Yeah. All the time. I knew I was so up to date on sports. It was ridiculous. And that's where, I mean, I was a little frustrated because I'm like, you're on ESPN. It's a huge platform. Like, it's not like this kid heard this joke on Instagram. Yeah, exactly. Totally get it. Like, there's it's unavoidable stuff out there. But so you hope that in all of this, like, those sorts of things go away, whereas when I was in middle school, those things were constant. I'm not saying there aren't social issues. And I'm not saying that even those things – I'm not saying I fixed that problem either. Mm -hmm. You know, that same kid who thought it through it might make the mistake again. But I know he's thinking about it. I know they're thinking about it. And he's coming to you about it. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I wasn't thinking that way when I was in middle school. I started thinking like that late high school and in college. Mm-hmm. Where, Same. Like, and I went to Ursinus, which is a very liberal school for the most part, and really pushes you to think about everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got a math degree from there, but I also know how to write. I know how to interact with people. I know how to really think deeply about everything. And that's a lot to do with Ursinus. But that's when I really started thinking about that stuff. A kid in seventh grade, eighth grade, sixth grade. You know, I think this, I think it's going to go a long way. Yeah. And again, I'm not saying every public school needs to be like that or that they can be like that. Part of it's just because we're such a small school, too. I was going to say part of it's like a resource issue just in the education system in general. Like, having, yeah. you know, most public schools just don't have access or, or the, the, the funding, essentially, to get those programs, to get those teachers, to get yeah. that, you know, like that relationship created. You right. Know? I mean, we... We also, like, there were some issues that came up that I can't really go into um, this year where the issue was bigger than something I could handle, too. So we hired outside people. Again, we know the kids well enough that we know that they need this resource Mm -hmm. that can better handle, like, conversations about healthy relationships or something than, you know, that I'm qualified to do. Of course. Also... I don't I don't know if this is super weird, but I teach fifth through eighth grade math, and I said there's 20 kids per grade about. So I teach the same kids in fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, and eighth grade. So last year, it's not my first year working with kids. It's my second year. And, like, this year coming in, some of the kids that I'm working with, I'll have worked with for three straight years now. Yeah. And there's pros and cons. Like, sometimes I feel like we're a little too comfortable with each other, you know? We, yeah, it might, like, get off topic too much or whatever. Yeah, or, yeah. or it's, like you think you can say something to a teacher that you still can't really say, even though we have a strong relationship. Ah, yeah, the respect boundaries. Yeah, like that's still there, even though it's harder after three years or four years. Um, And so I get that, but the pros far outweigh that. Like, even just with, even with math, which obviously it still has to be the focus of my job and is very much. Like, I want the kids that graduate from my school to look around the rooms in high schools and be better than everybody at math. Mm. Why? I mean, who, I don't know. who knows? <laughs> no, but you said at the beginning, like, you want them to succeed, right? Yeah. Like, it's like, you, if you love a kid, like, it's just like a parent. Like I said, it's just, if it works both ways. You can be a yeah. toxic parent and love your kids <laughs> so much that you, like, literally hate them when they <laughs> fail. You know what I mean? Or you can be a loving parent and just want the best for them and hope the best for them. And then that's just, that's enough, you know? Yeah, and, and uh, I'm also really competitive. So, like, I want people to know that, like, Oh, this kid came from Frankfurt Friends School from Teacher Kevin. Like, good kid. That's the sports in you. All that, yeah. those years of ESPN. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, it's all, that's all there. But I think even in that, it's like we can have a conversation about how you feel about math because, you know, we've, we've gotten there. We've worked together enough. And I've stopped and said enough times to you, like, how are you feeling about this? Or, mm-hmm. like, trying to keep people positive. You know, math, more than any other subject, people say, I'm bad at this. I can't do That's this. That's me, yeah. You know? Yeah. And there's a lot of research out there now about math mindset being really important. And I think it's just, a sh- it's it's also a competitive subject where people are like, look at that kid. He can do his multiplication table so much faster than me. And it's uh. like, that's not the enemy. It's the topic. Like, we're all here to learn the topic and you can all do it. And it might take you longer, but that doesn't mean you're dumb. Yeah, there's a, there's a stigma around math that isn't around yeah. any other topic yeah, like, or subject, I mean. And I tell kids all the time, I don't care if your parents can do math because you can't control what parents say either. If I could, 
I would have no adult say to any kid I was bad at math back in the day. Remember yeah. that for your kids. All Even right. though you might All feel right. that way, don't say it. Yeah. Until then it just like instills that in their head. Like, I'm going to be bad at math. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. be like my dad who I love and want to be just like, even though they're not going to say that when they're teenagers especially. Of course, yeah. 14, 15, no yeah. way. <laughs> but, oh, well, dad wasn't good at math, so it's okay for me not to either. Yeah. When you're older, yeah, tell them. I was going to say, but, I'm like not going to let them, like this episode will be locked away for them. Yeah. I'm going to put like some firewall yeah. over it. <laughs> like, the episode with Kevin is forbidden. What's wrong with Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> When they're old enough, they can listen to this and know. But, you know, but it's just, it's self-talk. It's totally. all self-talk. No, totally. I totally get it. Yeah. You can do it even if you're struggling at first. You're going to get it. And I, I like, that's one of the things, people say a lot of weird stuff in my classroom and it's fine. It's funny. But you, you, I don't want you walking around saying, I can't do this. Like, you're mm. just not going to say that. I'm not going to let you. And that takes coaching, too, to get people out of that. Yeah. But, like, more so than anything, I know I said I want kids to walk into the classroom in high school and be better than everybody, and, like, wow, that's still a want. I really have felt value in seeing kids work with me for even a year and just feel more confident, yeah. even, if they were, even if they weren't doing better. You know, that confidence goes a long way in the workplace, like, as they get older. You know what yeah. I mean? It's, like, workplace confidence and just being a confident person just makes you excel. Like, yeah. I'm not sure what the stats are, but I guarantee they're out there. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, like, that belief. You don't have to be good at everything, but you can. Like you can really, you could, just like we talked about with music, you could stop thinking about these other subjects, which you shouldn't do that, but you could stop thinking about these other subjects and just work harder on math. Yes, yeah. And, or sometimes I also see this too. It's not even just working too, some kids are working too hard, but they're not working smart. Mm. So it's like learning better strategies and that sort of thing. But everyone's capable Everyone's capable of, of learning math, even if even if you think math is dumb and it has no point. Like I don't even want to like, we don't have to get into that. Hey, but it's what we're doing. Yeah, and we're not yeah. gonna. Ch- they're not changing school right now. Yeah, so we're like, gonna do until it until that's an option. Like until yeah. the actual curriculum has changed, you have to yeah. do this. Yeah, yeah, and you know, we'll we'll make the best of it. Life's short. We'll make the best of it. Yeah, and we'll do our best and feel good about it. Hopefully. I think this whole dynamic between you and the students opens up an interesting conversation on the role of teachers and parents and coaches and any kind of adult figure in a student or a kid's life. Because talk about like just how traditionally like the institutions that we've had, these institutions of education and and, uh, like extracurricular activities, sports and all that for decades now, there was always this sort of uh, general understanding that you know certain things were meant for the home and certain things were meant for school and meant for sports like if you played sports you knew that the coach was going to be competitive and was going to bully you and be hard like just stereotypically maybe not literally every coach but most coaches that environment was just very competitively driven you know that at home you're going to like learn respect etc whatever and you know at school you're going to like learn respect etc and there's certain problems in in growing up that kind of get uh, like assigned to a given yeah. you know what i mean like a given yeah. adult figure and it's interesting how in recent decades i think most of those walls have kind of deteriorated as as a 
lifestyle changes have occurred. I mean, just just taking a few like really easy examples, like women in the workplace, like way more women are working today as like careerists instead of like just stay at home moms. And you got that, you got just like traditional boundaries breaking down between like, you got parents that are working from home. You got, you got, uh, like you're saying, like private institutions that are stepping in in more of these like parental roles in some cases. So it's interesting to consider just what we look as we look at the role of like adult figures in kids' lives, like what those boundaries should be. Because I think it's interesting. Yeah. How you pointed out the one example, which I think is great, how there was a situation in your school where there was the need to bring in outside support from like a specialized person or network right. or whatever. So it's super important to to come to that realization, like, hey, here's an area where we aren't versed enough to to meet this kid's needs or whatever. So we need help. Very important to know. There's also, like you've been saying though, all along, there's also this, uh, I think, grace period involved in in a, in a teacher and a student's life, just like there is in any adult in a, in a kid's life. That there should be an understanding that like there's certain areas that are going to be gray, and that. If a student is trusting this teacher, that there should be some space for communication. Like if a yeah. student is asking really deep questions or questions that are very highly like impactful to that time in their life, the teacher should be able yeah. to to make that relationship. You know what I mean? And yeah. like you said earlier, caveats included. Totally understand like why the law is the way it is, and there's certain boundaries in, in place for predatory uh, behavior and all yeah. that. And I totally yeah. get it, but. But like you're saying, I mean, just going back to being human, I mean, if a, if a kid isn't getting that from their home and they're not getting it from their coach or whatever these third-party adults may, may or may not be, maybe their pastor or their youth, youth leader or whatever the hell it, it might be, they got to get it from somewhere, right? right and if right. they're coming to a teacher, it, it's most likely indicative that they're not getting it somewhere else, right? right? right. Or, or they're not comfortable getting yeah. it from their parents or whatever. So, I mean... Maybe talk a little bit more about that. Cause that's that's just my take. Like I don't yeah. and I don't know what the answer is. I just think it's an interesting like discussion topic in terms of these walls have broken down largely of traditional examples of this. And I definitely think there should be more of a grace period and understanding between these kind of blurred lines. You know. Yeah, it's it's definitely tough. I think I think part of the thing is like you said, certain kids are going to get it from some places and not others, and. That doesn't even mean that the other adults are doing a bad job. Like, my parents were very supportive growing up. Um, I, I really can't complain much without complaining just to complain. You know, <laughs> I had, they're still together, mm-hmm. which it's, you know, that's a lot now. Yeah, right. You know, they're still together. And um, we didn't have financial worries. We weren't, like, filthy rich or anything, but we were in a good school district. And my parents were there for me. My mom was at, like, all sorts of sports games forever, you know. My, I remember having a basketball coach who knew he could look up and find her somewhere in the crowd at every Aww. game, home or away. You know, so I had I had all that stuff. There were still things that I wouldn't be comfortable asking yes, my yes, parents. Yes, exactly. It's, like, preferential. And, and it might not even yeah. be... Because it's a mo- like a male female thing, it might even just be, and I'm not saying that's you. I'm just saying right, in general, yeah. it might literally be a temperamental thing. Like yeah. you, you're just gravitated toward a certain adult figure because you feel like you can relate temperamentally. Yeah. And the reason could even be silly and superficial. Like I know that there's kids at my school who, at first, I don't think that this is like the only reason now, but at first respected me because I was fast at running. Mm-hmm. Like they saw me run at recess. And we're like, that teacher's cool. 
Yes. You know, like what? Yeah. Does that has nothing to do with me being a good math teacher or anything else? Mm-hmm. You know, or maybe you like understood a meme reference, reference, yeah. or you like got a joke, or 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 you're a musician, or any yeah. any number of things could attract the students. Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah, and then getting a meme is a. <laughs> I'd be a, a great it's, teacher. It's, it's, <laughs> 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 yeah. that, that's why it was. Uh, it was great to have you talk to some of our kids. Oh, yeah. I forgot about yeah. that. Oh, my God. Yeah. That was so funny. I didn't even know you were in the room. Remember when, like, I the camera in. kind of panned and I was uh-huh. like, you're in the corner? I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. That was, yeah, that was fantastic. Like, the kids loved that, by the way. Thank you again uh-huh. for it. Yeah, it was a great, I could tell they were a great group of kids. Yeah. And they, like, as soon as I started, they, they again, this even earned me, like, cool points because it's like I showed them the Stakeham profile on Twitter <laughs> and you know we didn't like scroll through for days or anything of course, but, yeah. but I just talked about how you grew the following and how like it's uh, you know depending on what you interact with obviously it's a famous thing right yeah, now right. you know like yeah. there's people who if I if I say like oh I'm friends with the Stakeham dude they're like what that's so cool yeah you know? it is crazy isn't it like there's like the conversation I did yesterday I was like raise a hand like show a hand I was trying to get like a framework to be like how much should I explain like what Stakeham yeah. is what yeah. the Twitter is and all that and there and there was like maybe 75 people in the room and like 10 or 15 raised their hands and I was like whoa like that's that's weird you know yeah. like to have people that like willingly are following and I've heard about this like it is a crazy feeling yeah so I mean stuff like that these, these kids like really would gravitate yeah, to, it's great. to that sort of thing um, even another thing at my school especially but I think across a lot of schools you could see this there's not a lot of male teachers mm. a lot of female teachers which is great you know um, I, I'd say it it makes sense too in a lot of cases with with some younger kids that females just tend to like gravitate towards that more. Right, right. Um, you know, whatever it is, I, I don't I can't really explain it all yeah, nowadays. Yeah, sure there's a lot of complex factors involved. Uh, yeah, because I, I don't I don't really get why more guys wouldn't want to be teachers, but I, I don't know. It's just like how it is, or at least ended up how it is at my school too. So like they get to middle school. And right now, if you went through Frankfurt Friends all the way up to the point where I would start teaching them in fifth grade, they would have a male teacher in third grade, and that's it. Besides, uh, we also have a music teacher who's male. So, oh, and we actually we just got a, a PE teacher who's male too. So you have mm-hmm. two specialists. But then, like, your actual— like the core curriculum. Core, yeah, yeah, would, yeah, you'd have one male over the— the course of that amount of time, which again, it's not, it's not like a bad or a good thing, but the thing that happens is as a male teacher, you get more like, I don't know what it is, just kind of like of a connection with some of the male students because they're like, oh, here's yeah, another natural. male. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's like males who might be like tough in other situations but like we've had that competitive back and forth toe-to-toe thing even it like literally at recess sometimes it's yeah. like okay let's race That's you know great. type of thing <laughs> and it's like oh we're good in the classroom now like i don't have a problem with, yeah there's like respect yeah yeah and, and it goes the other way with, with girls too like there's certain things that especially in you know sixth seventh eighth grade that plenty of girls aren't gonna be comfortable coming to me too hey you know Totally. Of course, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. And there's things that guys probably, I would even say this, I bet you in 20 years when I'm 46 and if I've like lost some of my hair or something or, you know, there's going to be some guys who would be more or less comfortable with me because I was older. Like Mm. right now I might get some of this like, oh, he's young. He gets our memes type of thing. And later I'm not going to get that. But then later I might get this more like he's like an established... (laughs) 
adult. Yeah, now, like, yeah, now he's like a mentor. Yeah, isn't it? Does it? Isn't it feel weird for you as you already like? I know we're. It's kind of weird even speaking of it in these terms because we we are still young. You're only 26. It's not yeah. like you're old, but doesn't it still feel weird? Kind of on this topic of the information highway that it does feel like time moves at such a crazy pace now like at, in compared to how it used to because yeah. culture and memes and everything are seen through this microscopic lens where like we're all paying such close attention to reality on a monthly basis that it time just feels like way 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 different so it feels like a month maybe feels like a year for some people and yeah do you feel like as time has gone on for you in the past couple of years of teaching that you've already kind of felt yourself more not i don't want to say disconnected from the students but disconnected maybe from like youth culture as you get older like have you already started to feel that even though you're still really young at all i think so i haven't started to feel like disconnected yet but i i am starting to feel that it's a little bit harder to get myself to stick with everything yeah it's just so much like it every is. year it's yeah. so much like the references the apps they're using the meat like you're yeah, saying that's a, the apps because some of them uh, you know, they'll they'll be on some app that doesn't have the strength and stay power of, like, an Instagram or something. Exactly. Like, yeah. they have Instagram. And, like, yeah, it's, like, kind of cool that their teacher gets how to use Instagram, too. Like, if, if somebody did something that's, like, taboo for Instagram and the kid talks about it, like, I get that. Like, I'm like, yeah, you can't do that on Instagram. You know what yeah. I mean? Oh, my mom did this. Like, yeah, I get it. But <laughs> we got this random app that this lifespan is, like, three months. Yeah, and then it's gone. It's like I don't I can't really like keep up with all that anymore as quickly at least. Like I'm aware of it, but I'm I'm not gonna dive into it for yeah. those three months and then like Yeah, it's like a pointless endeavor. Yeah. Uphill battle forever. <laughs> it's wild, it's got me thinking too about um I teach technology too, like a once a cycle for each grade. And it's funny how many times I have to say to them, like, even when I was in middle school, how much different it was. Or, like, talking to them about having a computer that had the internet and the phone was, like, the same thing. <sighs> yeah. You know? Like, it's literally a different universe. And 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 it's, like, the thing that's mind-boggling to me is, like, they can't even, like, conceive of that. Yeah. Like, they're, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> that's so lame. And I'm, like, that was, like, ten- it was, like, not long ago. It wasn't long ago at all. <laughs> yeah. I-, I was, like, lucky to have a cell phone 10 years ago when I was 16. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like a flip phone. And it was like a razor or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that. And I, t- I told them that story too. Oh, you were cool if you had a razor. Yeah, literally. Like, I remember I had one of those, like, crappy, like, Nokia flip phones or something like that. And all the kids had razors. And I didn't even have it, actually. It was my mom's. I, like, I, I would take it, like, when I went snowboarding. Or she'd be like, call me, like, when you get pe- when I get picked up or whatever. And all my friends would have the razors. And I'm like, oh, you guys. It's yeah, they were so cool. cool. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I had a Boost Mobile, like, brick phone in eighth grade. Oh, nice. Couldn't even flip and you had to like put minutes on or whatever yeah. so I like, tell them these stories and they're like you like know, you're ancient just... mr kevin yeah <laughs> yeah 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 teacher kevin he's uh he... but i mean they know that i'm young too though so i think that helps with the like like it literally was not that long ago yeah, guys. yeah. like you know i was sitting in school you know not that much not really that long ago with this dumb phone yeah and now y'all are like fifth grade with iPhones. Yeah. And it's just different. And that, and I, but I tell them that too. I'm like, we're going to talk about how you have to navigate some things that adults don't have answers to. Mm. Like the adults don't have the answers to how to navigate Instagram as a fifth grader. They're trying. So like, if you want to get frustrated at mom or dad for doing something, like we're all just know, like we're all trying to figure this out. We don't know what's best. We don't, I mean, even think about it. Like I'm on my parents' cell phone plan. 
there's no precedent for getting off of your parents' cell phone plan. Yeah. Our generation You're is the first one. the first one. <laughs> I am too. Mine's through work, and my wife is too. Like she pays like a uh, like she gives her mom a certain amount of money a month because it's like a family plan. Yeah. Or so it's like yeah, she just pays like her mom just takes her out of her bank account. It's like it just never stops. Yeah. It's like, and it, but there again, there's no there was a precedent for like oh you get kicked out of the house or whatever yeah. or like yeah. you got to get a job by now. There's no like people or health insurance. There's laws. You know, you just right get now, booted like, off. Yes. Yes. Yeah. There's no cell phone one. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I feel like it helps, too, in terms of sort of relating back to the students to maybe, like, it, try to explain to them in, in terms of they understand that when they're your age, they'll be going through the same thing. Like, yeah. the technology's only getting weirder and crazier. <laughs> like, you you might be laughing at the teacher right now as a, as a 13-year-old or whatever because they don't get the hip app. Like, you aren't going to get the hip app when you're that age. And I feel like even as someone who grew up, like, you and I grew up with the internet, like, as it yeah. as it got older. And especially for me, like, it's literally my job to be online all day. Like, I I know more about the culture of Reddit and 4chan and Tumblr and YouTube and all, like, the history of all these platforms more than literally probably 99% of the population. And <laughs> there's still, like, millions of people that know way, way, way more than me. But, I mean, I'm in that, like, nerdy tech upper echelon of people that just actually like to learn about this stuff and it's interesting to me but even i again when it comes to like you're saying these newer apps and what the younger generations are into like what they're using like what what's cool to them i there is no way to keep up with all of it like it's literally impossible like i and i do this for a living it's literally impossible to keep up with all the tech trends and you might be thinking like, say there's a 13-year-old listening to this podcast right now. You might be thinking right now, well, I grew up with memes. I grew up with all this. I'm always going to get it. You aren't. Like, no one can. You literally can't. Like, take it from me, a guy who grew up with the internet and works in the internet. It's my job. It's still impossible. Like, you can't keep up with the youth. Like, the kids. Right. It's literally like the it's the, the concept of, of almost like counterculture. Like, teens do things that essentially undermine or oppose what the adults do hence like it people teenagers create finstagram accounts like they're fake instagrams <laughs> yeah. like they don't want to be like it, it can even be as, as simple as their older sibling like maybe their older sibling is four years older than them and they don't want they think they're lame maybe yeah. they might think they're cool but i just mean like there, there's even cases where kids look at like the apps that their older sibling is are using and they're like that's lame i don't want to yeah. use that i'm yeah. not going to be like my older sibling so it's it's an uphill battle eternally, and yeah, you can only do so much to keep up. And teaching does help me keep up a bit. Like, yeah, you're constantly like fin- interacting with when, it. When Finstas were like, I knew about those right away. Yeah, yeah. People are like, <laughs> people are like, what's this Finsta thing? And I'm like, oh, that's old news. Yeah, let me tell you, because I was working with a freshman, and she showed me she had this Finsta and a regular. You know, they'll explain it to me. Mm-hmm. The other thing though that blows my mind. I did not understand when I was a kid, and I wish I did, and I keep coming to these understandings, is that you say stuff like, you're never going to be able to keep up, and it's okay. Yeah, I'm happy. it's okay. Like, when I was in college, and I was, you know, going out with my friends on Fridays and Saturdays and and all that stuff, I thought about how lame it was when people were older and didn't want to do that anymore. Now I don't want to do that anymore. I love it. It's great. It's amazing. (laughs) You grow into it. Yeah, you just grow with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I was I was worried about people spreading out and not having not having conversations with friends as much anymore. I love talking to my friends. 
I don't want to talk to him every day. And I'm yeah. okay with that. The space is fine. When yeah. I was younger, that would freak me out. Even in college, I was like, what do you mean you're not responding to my yeah. text? Now it's like, ah, take a day. Well, and it's way more temperamental, too, because when you're in, or uh, yeah, temporal, I should say, like when you're in grade school and high school and even college, many, if not most, of those relationships go away. You know what yeah. I mean? Like you don't keep in touch. Like kids, maybe they move across the country. Maybe they move across the world. Or maybe they move across the state. They just they work in a different industry. Like it's very difficult to keep those relationships intact. Whereas the relationships you do keep intact post college tend to be lifetime relationships because it's like yeah. those the roots are already established. So you might go a year, two years, maybe even three or four years without seeing a person. But then you get lunch with them or whatever. You go to the bar and it's just normal. Yeah. It's like it's like you never left. You're like, oh, well, it's fine that we haven't seen each other in this long. You've got the kids. I moved here and, and work overtime. This is great. Like, it doesn't feel... You know what I mean? But when yeah. you're younger, it's like, oh, my God, like, so-and-so is going to this school. I'm never going to see them again. So-and-so started hanging out with this group of friends. So-and-so got into this sports team. Like, everything is constantly moving, and it feels so fragile. And it's like... It, and it makes sense that it's harder to hold on to and you get more scared. But, yeah, you get older and it's just like this is life. People yeah. have, have lives and, and you make time when you can make time and it's fine. And I'm so happy that I'm like coming to this too because there's things that I'm worried about when I'm getting older that I'm realizing are just going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Like I've been joking with Christy about this and I do actually – I am kind of like scared of losing my hair. But, you know, it's it, – it'll I'll be okay. Like mm-hmm. I'll be at a point in my life – where I'm just going to be okay yeah. if that happens and when that happens, you know? And I, so I feel I feel better having had experiences where that's happened, where I can look forward and say, it's going to be okay then too. Right, but at the same right. time, I really don't want to forget what you were just talking about because I think I would be a wildly ineffective teacher if I forgot how fragile things were, especially in middle school. Yeah. Because that's – when people talk about relating – like, that's what you got to do is remember, like, put yourself in what those was it shoes. Like? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember what it was like. I remember what it was like to be frustrated with my parents, even though I love them to death. I remember what it was like to have too much homework or to, like, not care about a project or to be really, really upset that somebody didn't talk to me. Yeah. Or to have a crush on someone and they never pay attention to you or to have yeah. acne. Like to, yeah. like, to be like, I would, dude, I would wake up in the morning. And I didn't even have bad acne. Like, I had acne, but looking back, there were people that had it way worse than yeah. I had it. But it felt like the end of the world yeah, in the morning. Because, and you can't, you can't, what you just did, you can't do at that it's, age. It's you impossible. You can't compare You can't it rationalize it, yeah. And say, well, well, these people have it worse, so, you know, I'm fine. Yep. It's, it's totally, one of the most amazing things, though, that I think I've realized from the kids that I work with, a lot of them actually understand what they're going through right now is because of how old they are. And like mm. this ki- this guy, he was he was really upset one day about I forget what it was, something with a friend group, and he said to me while he was crying, I know that this is part of just my age and oh like my gosh. with like all of the, you know, stuff that I'm going through with my body and everything right now that I'm feeling this way and I know that that's a big part of it, and I'm going to be okay. That's some crazy introspection. And you only get that now at the information age. It's like yeah. the constant just like mirroring and, and conversations that you're you're getting hit with from every angle. It's like it almost – it's like uh, – I don't know how healthy that even is. Like forcing introspection yeah. at such a young age, it's like you almost – the time to overthink that stuff, you, you're supposed to kind of like gradually – move into that but yeah like I, I wonder how young kids are getting to that point where they are like self-actualizing yeah. these things so that's that's a crazy thing to consider 
I mean, I think I think there's plenty of things that are bad that kids are exposed to earlier, but that's one thing where I'm just like, they should learn. Like they should they should start to come to that. I mean, if if I understood that stuff when I was that age, it wouldn't have been so hard, I think. Mm. To be able to say like I know that I'm just feeling this way because yeah, I mean, obviously it's it's not like he was just like happy after that. Like he was still upset about what was going on, but like right. This is the type of thing that keeps kids out of, like, horrible depressions and things like that. Yeah. Like, when there's so many – that's the other – the bad side of all this information is I think there's a lot of things that can make younger people more depressed because they're bom- they're bombarded with the negatives of the world that they don't – they can't do anything about yet. Right. Like, they're powerless to it, yeah. You know, we're, we're teaching kids how to be empowered politically, but, like, as a sixth-grade kid – you have no voting power. Yeah, you, you have no you, voice in you society. Can't even go, you can't even go vote against Trump. Yeah. You know? And not to say that kids don't have any power. We've seen plenty of examples where they have made political statements through the internet and that sort of thing recently, and it's been really powerful. But I imagine they feel, like as a kid, you must feel like I felt that there isn't a lot of places where you have control yes, in your life. Yes, exactly. So then to know... You know, we have this racist president, but I, you know, feel powerless about that. And it's just more and more. Oh, and we live in a racist country. We There's wars being fought over religion. There's all this. There's like domestic abuse. There's sex trafficking. And, th- and this literally kind of just jump in. I mean, that's exactly what you were just describing a moment earlier where you're saying insofar as like a parent or an, a, an adult figure's ability to help guide a child the, this information that's coming in like like to explain like hey the reason you're feeling this thing is because of this and then the kid can kind of like grow into that and be like oh i know that this is because i'm this age i know this is because i'm depressed or there's this whatever deficit there might be yeah. that's like super super healthy but then yeah like this is like the flip side of it too because with the excessive information when you're that age, you can't process it. Like there's a reason that parents traditionally and adult figures in general have traditionally shielded younger kids, I think from self-actualization and from like answering those. Cause it's it's like, it's like the age old stereotype. Like the kid goes, mommy, like is God real or whatever. And then like the mom just comes up with some like fairy tale or some like metaphor. And she does it not because she doesn't want to tell her kid, but because she's like, traditionally it's understood like it's like i don't know if it's psychological or whatever or if it, maybe it's all based on lies but the idea is that like hey they're, they're too young to process yeah. this you know what i mean so it's like yeah. like you're saying with the negativity if you look at any news cycle any social media platform constant bombardment of yeah. all the atrocities of the world because that's what gets the most clicks right. so it's like there, there's a ton of good stuff happening everywhere but you the atrocities get the most clicks and that's being just funneled non-stop into these yeah. little little human brains and then yeah. it, it, like I, I agree with you i i think that long term and in most cases the ability to self-actualize and to understand your own circumstances is more beneficial than not at those younger ages because we should be treating children i think with much more respect like treating them like yeah. they are small adults yes. instead of being like patronizing like i a hundred percent agree with that point i also just think it comes with that negative baggage to then trying to psychologically i think there's going to be decades decades of more research before we have a better understanding of this because it's just like how do children's brains process this level 
of information. You know right. what I mean? Like, I don't know. And, and it's also like when I when you say like, you know, like the God answer, I thought, well, when I have a kid, I'm just going to tell him the truth or what I believe to be the truth or like what is what is the like, you know. There's a lot of different philosophies say, about like, no one knows. No one like, really yeah, knows. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is what dad believes. This is what mom believes. This is what, you know. Your parent or grandparents believe yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, totally. exactly. I want to have that conversation. But the, the problem when I think about that answer is I always think about middle school kids because that's who I work with every day. And I understand them really well. I feel like I understand a middle school kid better than a lot of people in the world in general mm-hmm. who aren't middle oh, school teachers, you know. Yeah, yeah. But – what about a younger kid? Like, then I think about that question. What do I, what do, I do when I get that question and the kid's in first grade? Mm. I don't really know them that well. Now, luckily, Christy's teaching elementary school, so hopefully she'll Got have all those answers. Yeah. And I'll have the <laughs> middle school answers. But, yeah, it's tough. It's a lot, man. Do you – um? We can kind of wind down here. I know we've been going for a while. It's been, yeah. it's been a fun. It's been a fun conversation. I knew it would be fun. I, uh, I knew it would be a fun one with you. Every time we have like sat down to have a meal or something, I was like, if somebody recorded that, that could have been a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, you put good people in a room. You never know what's going to happen. I, I was. I wanted to ask you at some point um, on the topic of the of, a, of a, us recording a podcast, this, this being a public broadcast in some sense of the word um we i mentioned this before we started recording just being like hey i always ask a guest before we we get Mm -hmm. into it like hey are there any guardrails we should be mindful of like is there anything you want to talk about not talk about like what are some things just to kind of like set the stage a little bit before we jump in and it is something interesting to consider that we kind of briefly talked about before we started recording where I'm a public person. I didn't set out to be a public person. I was, I've always been a musician, and, I, and it just so happens, I I believe, I'm sure there's other Nathan Alibox out there, but they're just not on Google at all. I'm the yeah. only Googleable Nathan Alibox, and because of that, I've always been, quote-unquote, public. Like, if you Google my name, you can find my music, you can find my personal social media pages. There's just nothing else yeah. that comes up, you know what I mean? So. I've just kind of fell into that. And like, and also like I have relatives and family that are in business and whatnot. So it's like, it's just all kind of tied in. And obviously through the podcast and through my uh, work with Stakem and other social media stuff, like it's all kind of pushed me into the public uh, sphere. I didn't, the first like year or so I managed that account, I tried to stay off the public stuff. But then like after you get interviewed a few times, it's like, well, now people knew who you were. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I'm I'm like, I'm out there. Like, what do I do? Like, do I just like erase my social media or do I like embrace it? Like, I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm a pretty open person. Like I'm just going to embrace it. Like I'm podcasting with people now. So, and needless to say though, I'm at a point now where I know, you know, there's consequences to all my words, kind of going mm-hmm. back to this whole thing with Stephen A. Smith. Like, yeah. you're looking at this guy on ESPN, you're like, he has one of the biggest platforms in the world. He should have some kind of responsibility or he should at least be thinking more about, like, the consequences of his words. And I, for better or worse, I think about it all the time. You know, I'm, I'm always, even in this own conversation, like, there's been points where it, 10 minutes previously I'll be thinking back, like, oh, shit, I shouldn't have said that <laughs> thing. Like, or I worded that really poorly. You know, like, I'm always... Being like, ah, like, what's, is someone going to perceive this the wrong way, you know? And um, anyway, all, all I'm trying to get at, though, is you as a teacher. I mean, it's interesting considering the implications of you being a public figure, like someone who has yeah. produced music. You are coming on this podcast. I know you've done at least one other podcast before you did it with uh, Bob yeah. uh, Cahill. So th- in thinking about that, I mean, like, do you have any 
uh, like apprehensions? Like, like what's it like for you considering the fact that like this is this could potentially be permanently out there? Your future kids could hear it. Your students could hear it. Your future students could hear it. Like, do you have you thought about the consequences of just like being a public person at all as a teacher? Yeah, definitely. I, I thought about it a lot because it's also one of those things that most advice you would get is to do the opposite of what I'm doing. Like mm-hmm. a lot of teachers, everything's private. They uh, will use like their middle names instead of right, last names. Right, like, yeah. Or they just don't even have social media anymore. And that was a lot of advice I got in college was to delete it all. And at first, I mean, the biggest thing that kept me from doing that was I was a musician. And I thought at the time that there was going to be a day when I quit teaching to be a musician. And so I couldn't delete it. Like, as a local musician, like, what are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. Like, come up with some, like, uh, what do you call it? Like a pen name or a, what do you call it? Like a, a pseudo. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's it's not as not as easy to market. <laughs> yeah. One of them be, like, Bono or something. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it just it – was, it wasn't going to work. So but what I realized, one of my first jobs, I put my Twitter account to private. And some kids came in to school with some of my tweets printed out. But the account was private. So at that moment, I was just like, there is no point for me trying to hide if I'm going to be online. Yeah. What, what was the context for it? Were they just like messing around? They were or? messing around. I, okay. was a, I was a new teacher. I was a substitute. Like I came in in February and they were eighth graders. So they're like at the top of the school uh-huh. and they're just kind of like, right. they, I, I was like their third teacher that year who's this young guy, you know, he's 22, 23 or whatever. They probably thought it was cool and funny and didn't understand how disrespectful it was right. looking back, but I didn't get it then yeah um but so i was just like they're gonna find it like kids are gonna you better delete everything or they're gonna find it yeah so at that point i did a long like what's the word audit of my social media i scrolled back on twitter as far as you can possibly scroll and i deleted everything that had a curse word in it i deleted everything that had Anything like even seemingly yeah, it like, could be interpreted as problematic or yeah, suggestive. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I realized that if I spent all that time doing that, and I did the same thing on Facebook. With Facebook, it took a year because every Facebook memory that popped up, I read all of the Facebook memories and yeah, I deleted the ones yeah, yeah. that were that were problematic. So, which everyone has those, right? Like right. we started using Facebook. I was like a freshman in high school or something. So, like, of course, I said dumb stuff. But then I realized once I did that. The only thing I had to do from now on is keep in mind that anyone could be listening. My students could be listening. If my students listen to this podcast, I'm glad. Yeah. Like, I'm really okay with that. I, I, I hope that some of them do. Um, they're just going to get to know me better. And I don't think that I've said anything today or online anywhere since I did that audit that makes me a bad role model. Mm. I think the way I view it is my social media, if kids are going to find it, you know, they don't, when they're current students, like, we don't, like, friend each other. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to accept Facebook and friend invitations. But, like, with with the amount of Finstas and things, like, I can't possibly, like, block every kid from Instagram or something. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I do my, like, professional responsibility. And if a kid asks me to follow, I'll tell them to wait until after eighth grade, like, after they've graduated, that sort of thing. But I know they're going to find stuff, even if they're not following me. They do, and I think it's just another opportunity for them to see me as a role model. Like, yeah. I'm interacting on the internet in a way that I think is healthy, and it's kind of good because it keeps me in check all the time. Mm. Like, so there's – I have opinions, 
I'm going to make sure that even when I'm in a setting like this where we're good friends and we're recording something that my opinions are shared in like in a respectful way and that they're things that I would be comfortable telling my kids if they asked. Right. Like if if somebody asks me how I feel about Trump, I'm going to give them that whole like, eh, you know, you're asking your teacher this sort of thing, but I don't like him. Yeah. And I didn't vote for him. Yeah. At a public school, I couldn't say that and I wouldn't have. I, you know, I would have talked about respect and that sort of thing. Right. But, like, there just comes a point where it's like, you got to understand that I'm a person, and I think all my kids understand that. I'm a person. I make mistakes. I have opinions, and they have opinions, and it's all okay for us to share all those things. I'm not being hateful anywhere. You know, if I'm going to say something dumb, I'm sure Christy's heard plenty of dumb stuff at home <laughs> since we moved in. Like, there's a time when I turn it off. But I'm really cognizant of that. Yeah. Like whenever I'm not at home, I'm on. Well, this and this goes right back to this idea of being like an arbiter of information because in doing that as a teacher, you're taking on a similar understanding and etiquette as a journalist should ideally, whereas a good journalist in most cases will not pretend like they're objective because just like teachers, journalists are people, they have biases. They're coming from certain perspectives. Like there is for anyone listening, if there is anyone listening who thinks that there's like this point on the map that makes you objective or like perfectly centrist or moderate, it just doesn't exist. It literally has never and never will exist because everyone defines the spectrum differently. No two people are going to see like left and right exactly the same. Like I can have a conversation with a socialist friend of mine. Their understanding of the American political spectrum is going to be vastly different than if I have a conversation with my conservative parents. It's just not even going to be like the same universe. Like they're talking about completely different things. So if you pretend like I'm between these things, it's a joke because like to one side, you might be considered far left to the other side. You might be considered far right so all that to say i mean in terms of delegating your your responsibilities and socially and publicly in that way i think it's so important just to be honest about your personal experiences and your personal opinions because you can do that in a way where you're setting aside those biases while you're teaching a lesson or you can say i'm teacher kevin whatever here's my opinion on trump but as I teach you, like if say you were teaching political science or something like that, yeah, sure. I'm going to be impartial as I can mm-hmm. to this subject matter. Like you can be honest about the biases because everybody has them, but you should also in some way try to frame the conversations in an open, respectful way, like you said, where you're inspiring people to ask questions. Like you're inspiring yeah. them to be curious and to be like, oh, Kevin thinks this. I wonder why he thinks this. Let me ask. Maybe they just totally disagree with you. Maybe they're on yeah. the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. So then instead of shutting them down and making them feel isolated, you make them think, well, what kind of questions can I ask him? Like, I wonder why he thinks that way because yeah. I don't think that way. So instead of being like the douche teacher who's like, you know, F this guy, you get to be like, I don't like this guy. Here's why I don't like this guy. But we're going to continue learning about so-and-so topic because that's like what I'm here to teach. Like I'm not. Yeah. And I think that's like a whole other tangent. I think it's a major problem right now with journalists being public. And I think like traditionally the responsibility of a journalist, is it's been completely deteriorated in today's Internet climate because people like the media itself, like the, the journalism model is broken to the point where it's now based on clicks and so much of those clicks are based on outrage. And so much of that outrage is based on this like 
highly personal opinions from journalists instead of actual reporting, which is like, that's what people want now. It's like they follow journalists for their hot takes and their, yeah. their opinion pieces instead of actually looking for the object or not objective, but the, the, the clearest impartial story of the matter. And it's right. more and more difficult to find that. And I think that as a teacher or any arbiter of information, it's so important to not pretend like you're one, it's one, not to pretend you're objective, but two, not to try to enforce the biases. Not the, don't be the opposite either. Like don't try to enforce whatever thing is onto your students because all that does is isolate young, growing minds that are trying yeah, to take in information. Right. You know, right? Like I, I had a, a student who thought that his mom was like too feminist. And, you know, and we had a lot of good conversations about that. Mm. You know, it was, but it was that's what it was though. It was they it's were, a conversation. Yeah, good conversations. Like I was like, oh, I wonder, like why do you think, why do you think that your mom is that way and that sort of thing? And it's like, you know, I, it, that. But that's what it's about. Now I think I'm also kind of lucky in the sense that I teach math because those conversations will now come up more naturally. Like that conversation that I'm thinking of, like it didn't happen in the classroom, you know, it happened like, I forget where we were, like the playground or something. Mm -hmm. But, um, even with math though, I try to tell kids and just be clear as day all day that I'm a human. The only reason I'm so good at math and air quotes (laughs) is because I've done this for so long, even though I'm young. Like I did what they were doing 13 years ago and I haven't stopped doing math. So, of course, I can multiply like some numbers in my head or something. Or, of course, I always remember how to solve a proportion. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, that's what I'm doing. But I tell that to them because they're like, wow, you know so much math. I'm like, that's what happens (laughs) when you work really hard at something for a long time and you're going to do it too. It might not be math if you don't want it to be, but you're going to be that good at something when you're 26. Oh, yeah. That's so important. Yeah, that is so important because, like, it's so easy, especially as they grow up, looking – at Instagram accounts of celebrities and people that are young that are blowing up. Like, to take Mason Ramsey, that kid who's, like, 12 or 13 now, and he's the yodeling Walmart kid who got famous, (laughs) you know? And he's, like, a child, and he's world famous now. He's, like, blowing up. He's viral. Everybody, most people, I should say, know about who this kid is. And it's, like, if you're a kid who's that kid's age and you're looking at that, you're thinking that's so unfair or that's so crazy that he like got famous. He's my age. How did that happen? Whereas, and you see that's again, just like outrage media is what's uh, like risen to the top of of most journalism. That type of sensationalism is what's risen to the top of most like celebrity media where it's like, what are the craziest, most like out there fringe stories in Hollywood, like, what are these, like, the yodeling Walmart kid, you know what I mean? Like, the yeah. cla- could there be a more classic, archetypal example of, like, the Ellen show? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> the Ellen show is like, become known as, like, the place where when you have your viral moment, you go on Ellen yeah. to, to talk about, you know what I mean? And it's like, and it's so, it's fine, it's fun, culturally, we can talk about it, we can joke about it, but when you're that age, when you're really young, yeah. and you're constantly bombarded with that messaging, you're thinking to yourself, when's my moment going to come? Like, how am I going to get famous? How am I going to become super successful and popular and smart, like my teacher, or whatever it might be? Yeah. And it's so hard to drill back into them, like, this does not happen overnight for anything. Like, yeah. you have to be the 
0.000001% of the population that you get that stroke of luck if it's a combination of genetics and experience and and upbringing and all these things that align to make you that way. Otherwise, you're just like the rest of us, and you got to put in the hours and years yeah. of, of commitment to whatever it is that you're doing to get good at it, you know? Well, Walmart kid's not even good at anything. <laughs> the, the thing that I do, I think it's working. Like, I have kids. I remember this one time there was a prompt, and it was kind of like it was a fairly corny advisory prompt, but it was about this. The only reason I think it was corny is because I really believe the kids that I'm teaching are, like, they're just in a better place than I remember being in middle school. Smarter, more well-rounded. Right, like. right. So the, the prompt was something about this, uh, f- like, woman who – I forget exactly what it was. But she did something with space or, like, physics or something. Like, really intense, amazing thing. And – I was like, so she just, like, became famous. Like, she just was always a genius. And, you know, and I got, like, some of the nastiest looks. These kids were like, what? Like, what are you talking about? She probably worked really hard. Like, (laughs) she probably, and I was like, good. Like, one, my acting is good enough that I faked that. Second, like y'all actually get it, like or at least at least are at the point where you can That's like awesome. put that into words. That yeah. like no, that person did not become a famous physicist because they were just good at right, right. She probably worked really hard in science class or whatever. That's phenomenal. So That's great, hope. man. I love it, and I love just the the concept that you mentioned this uh, uh, before we started recording. Just how no matter how old you are, whether you're preaching to these kids or you're talking to your peers or parents or whatever. All of us have gone to school, so we can all yeah. easily relate to what it is that you're going through and what you're projecting onto these kids. I mean, it's such a great career field in terms of you're teaching, but you're teaching because you're in a position of lifetime learning. Like, you're able to constantly look back to those years through the kids, like you're seeing through their eyes and trying to project back to them your own experience. Yeah. So it's like a constant, like, reuptake of learning and taking in new experiences and remembering old experiences. And it's such such a cool thing to be able to do that. And it's so clear, like just listening to you talk about all this. I mean, like you, you've been reiterating again, I don't want to, it's so dumb that I even have to do these caveats, but like, I know someone's listening probably like, well, he's not perfect. Like you said a million times, like everybody makes mistakes. No one's perfect. Like, of course you're going to, screw up or whatever like there's not a single perfect teacher or perfect anybody but i can just tell from taking in the conversation and like how your outlook is shaped on it how you talk about your students like just your thought process in insofar as how you you decide to teach and all that it's just so it's so phenomenal that you come and come to the table with the worldview that you come to it because i think you know there's no I think most teachers, I think there's a lot of stereotypes about any career field, but with oh, yeah. teachers, there's a lot of stereotypes around just like people that, I don't know, like it's because it's such an underpaid um, job industry, I think, and teachers are always like demanding more money because of that. And there's a lot of intrinsic problems with like funding and all that. And it's all very complex and political. And because of that, I think there's a stigmatization on teachers where it's like, well, why should teachers be making more money? Like they're not doing that much. Like they're just glorified babysitters or they're you know i mean there's a lot of stereotypes around just like the role of teachers in society and i think it's so important to just like break that down and be like 
in reality, like there's a lot of fields that you can get into. Like, like we were talking earlier, you could get into real estate, you can get into business, you could get into being a doctor and you could get into any of those, well, maybe not being a doctor as much, but you can get into a lot of fields with the understanding that you're going to make a lot of money. People that get into teaching in almost all cases get into it because they love it, you know? Yeah. And it's like along the way, it's easy to lose sight of that for a lot of teachers. I think there's a lot of jaded teachers, a lot of cynical teachers. Like for sure, we've all had bad teachers. I'm not saying they're all perfect angels or anything like that, but I think it's great that you're maintaining the, the worldview around teaching that you have and you're reflective enough that I think you'll be able to continue to look back on that worldview and, and keep shaping it rather than degrading it. Whereas a lot of teachers, I think you get to that point where it's just like you hit the wall, you yeah, know, like maybe it's yeah. like a bad school district. Maybe it's just bad students, maybe bad personal life, whatever it is. You hit that wall and you just like lose sight of why you got into it, you know? Yeah. And I think I just, I, with your mindset you have right now, if you maintain it, I just don't see that happening, you know? Well, I, I appreciate that a lot. And I think it's something I think about, that if I am going to lose that at some point, I'm going to stop teaching. Like I've said that, mm, I've said that that's a lot of times that if, if I'm not going to just, I'm not going to keep doing it if I hit that point where it's just like stale for me. Yeah. Just teach to teach for a job or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like you said, people don't get into teaching for money. They get into teaching in spite of the money. Mm-hmm. Like unless you're at a really nice school district, um, a nice public school district like in Chester County or something like Great Valley where I went. It's like, should the teachers be paid more? Yeah. But if you stay there long enough, you can make a decent living. Totally. It's not like, you know, not, it's not like every school district everywhere is poor, but that's yeah. the exception. Totally. Yeah. And in a private school, like people think private school, so they have a lot of money. No, like we don't get all the federal funding. Yeah. Right. So it's strictly tuitions and donations and things. So like I work at a private school and I'm making less than I would at some public schools, more than I would at some public schools probably too. Mm-hmm. But like it's – I'm I'm not there for the paycheck. Totally, yeah. Besides the fact that there is one, you know what I mean? Like I have to acknowledge that. Like I wouldn't do it for free. Of course, of course. Just like any of this. It yeah. goes back to the musician thing well, yeah. too. It's like the, hence the struggle of any yeah. creation, any art, any work. It's like of course there's going to be that tug and that pull back and forth of like passion, mon- monetary gain. Be, having an identity, growing up, like these are all things that are tied into your decision making as you get older. Of course, you couldn't do it for free. That's not a exceptional thing to say right. at all. We all we all work in that in that mindset to a degree. Yeah, yeah. but you know, it is. I, I hope I hope I can keep up the mindset too. If just I mean, patience is a big thing. I think of just being patient and understanding that like there's new people learning something that I learned a long time ago, mm. and we're all gonna get there. And it's gonna be great, but. You know, the kids teach you a lot, too. And I thought it was really corny when I was young. The teacher said, like, we're trying to make lifelong learners, you know. Mm. Uh, my schools must have done a good job because I really do feel like I am one. <laughs> That's great. But, and I try to stay away from corny phrases as much as possible because I know it's, uh, with kids, I mean, because I know yeah. some of them think it's annoying. Unless you're being ironic. Yeah, I do that, that like, too. you get that, like, meta level yeah. of just... <laughs> Uh, I do that too. You're like I get what I'm. Do- I get yeah. that you get what I get that I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That's about, again why I love middle schoolers too. They, uh, get, yeah, they get it. They'll yeah. go there. They'll play with you there. But yeah. yeah it's you know, it, but it it really is that if you're not if you're not still learning, you shouldn't be teaching because you're not really you're not really teaching like exact skills, especially nowadays. Even though there's plenty in math, it's like and I try to explain this all the time because you're like, well, when are we going to use this? It, you might not. 
like, like, but there's no way of knowing for any of the stuff you're learning. Yeah. The job field's always changing. Yeah. First off, why is math the one that gets that attack? Like, <laughs> when have you used Beowulf? Yeah. Okay. Or chemistry. Yeah. Or, so, a, or any Come of, on. Yeah. Like, let's yeah. chill out with that. It's every subject. <laughs> but, but anyway, they're all, but that's not to mean that they're none of them are valuable. They're all valuable. It's all styles of thinking. Like, yes, if I wasn't, exactly. if I wasn't a good writer, I mean, I'm a math teacher. You might not think it matters, but it affects my job. Like, mm. I have to write emails all the time. I I write comments about report cards for kids. I have to write some reports sometimes. I like in music, I have to write. I have to be well spoken. I have you know, I, I have to have learned some things about science, but mostly I had to learn about the scientific method mm. and the procedures of yes, experimenting. Yes, exactly. And you gotta learn logic skills. And you gotta learn about problem solving. And no, you might not use a proportion to solve your problems, although I have. <laughs> I have used proportions to solve uh, monetary issues with bands. That's amazing. You can ask Judah. I did it for him. <laughs> set up, we set up an algebra equation and solved it. Oh, my God. But that's, so, that's so fitting. It's a style of thinking, though. Your yes. life has things you can't change, and it has rules. It's a little le- it's a little more flexible than math is, but there are things that you – there are rules – and things that you can't change about whatever problem you have, and you have to work your way through that and figure out how to creatively get out of it. Mm. And I really don't think you do that if you don't have a math teacher push you there. Yeah, and, and like you said, I mean, I think it's so important to reiterate again how each person has a different temperamental mindset. Like, they, our brains are wired differently. Like yeah. We don't, some students learn quicker with math skills. Some students learn, like, I was much more... Um, I abstract, always been more creative. So I was terrible at like the the confines of math. I think yeah. that really is what it is. Like you said, like learning to work your way out of a box that you've that you've mm-hmm. built. That's been the ongoing struggle of my life. I mean, to this day, I'm yeah. really highly conceptual, highly abstract, and it's a uh, it's always been. Ch- like I got I had like a, sp- a tutor at one point because I literally was like struggling so bad I might have failed uh, yeah. multiple two points. Uh, like one was in I think sixth grade. The other one was in. My senior year of high school, like I've always had issues with it. And I think it's important to acknowledge, you know, like that works both ways. Like there's going to be kids who struggle conceptually. There's a reason that some kids grow up to be bankers. Some kids grow up to be, you know, people that work in advertising like yeah. I do. I mean, it's really, it really depended on the brain. And like you said, I think it's so important again to say that it's all of these things can be tied into the human experience on some level and having that holistic, uh, mindset and approach to, to teaching is so great because what you're doing, like you said, like, Hey, if I, if I stop loving teaching, I'll stop teaching. You could take the mindset that you've developed through teaching through everything that you're, you're speaking about here and use that same skill set in so many other fields, oh, yeah. like consulting, PR, business management, life coaching. Like there's so many fields that require the exact holistic understanding of, of the human experience and learning that you can pass on essentially so it's like it's great to again just like have that that worldview that you're developed at this point to 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 sustain yourself i guess long term you know yeah i really feel like uh it's kind of like a bigger sinus thing that that school it's uh you know they don't give you the i don't know like they they make you become a whole person. Like you don't just you don't get to leave or sinus with a degree and that be like the only thing that you did there. Like mm-hmm. I have a bachelor's degree in math and I have a teaching certification and that is not all that I am. And a big part of that is because of what I what I worked on at, at Ursinus. Like yeah. people don't. My roommate uh, 
So Christy lives with me, but also my roommate Devin uh, went to her sinus too. And we joke all the time about we get crazy emails from people and we're just like, you don't leave her sinus writing emails like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Hey, I, I, I can give props to her sinus. I've only ever been in the library, I think. I walk my dog through the campus like every day because uh, right, yeah. I live right there. So yeah. I'm always walking through it. It's a beautiful campus. Um that's great, though, man. No, I, I think that's all. Those are great points, and, and uh, props to props to your college, or the university, yeah. I should say. For, no, it is college. It's college. college. Right, right, yeah. college, yeah, for for all that. So, dude, this has been great. I, I feel like that's a good uh, a good note to end on. We, we've hit a lot um, yeah, we have. in this conversation. Was there anything else you wanted to add or, like, or touch on? I don't on? know. We could keep talking for another couple hours. Yeah. My voice is getting tired. I know, dude. Oh, my God. And I'm just, like, my brain. I've pro- <laughs> Again, <laughs> I, I want people, if anyone's still listening at this point in the podcast, I want people to remember what I said at the very beginning of the podcast. I am just on, like, no sleep and, and uh, travel confusion in my mind. So <laughs> I don't know if it's helping me or making it. Because, you know, sometimes it makes it better. You get, like, extra sharp because you're, like, on edge. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm on edge. I don't know. But, no, it's been great, man. I really I really appreciate the uh, the time. And, and you're a great guy. And, like, I, <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad this fourth time's a charm, right? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it was, yeah. <laughs> No, it's been great. I really appreciate appreciate you having me.